And welcome back to Scream Addicts Hammer Pub. I am Jinxer. You know what, Paul? I start every episode out the exact same way. Should we be doing something different? Should we spice it up a little bit? Should we? Should we? Should we do something else? Do you just want to take the opening this time around? What? Uh, what are we doing here? I can take the opening. I'm not as, uh, you know, fluid with it as you are. Am, am, um, am I though? You know, See, people. I, every every episode, I always wonder, like, how do I sound? How am I coming off? I, I kid you not, I rack my brain wondering, like, oh, did everything come off okay? And then I listen to it later, and I'm just like, yeah, I sound okay, I guess. I don't know. You've got that, that good host vibe. You know, you've got that kind of talk show host, you know, sensibility to your voice. The mannerisms and the uh, the intonations come off really well. I feel like I'm more uh, I'm more the sidekick guy, you know? Yeah, I'm, I'm the guy who's like, yeah, I'm here too. <laughs> You're not, you know, no, no, we're, we're both Batman. All right. There are no Robins on this show, but, uh, you know, I could, I could do intros. I just don't have my little thing worked out like you do, but you know, way, people I'm, love, this uh, is, people this is love the opening, by the way, comfort. We're, we're they're, they're comforted by the same thing over and over again. You know, when they tune in, that's why the, the, the entry theme song to like all the sitcoms was always the same, you know, with the same little opening flashing the same images over and over again it's comforting to see that okay so you're saying i should just do the same thing well no i mean i i'm just saying i think it's a good thing i mean we could always change it up in the later seasons of sitcoms they often change the theme song and and it matured with the characters isn't that usually when those shows start going to hell though like well, they had a cousin yeah. that you've never <laughs> seen before they bring in like <laughs> chimps you know to take over like you know it's just it's not always uh, it's not always a good thing when they start mucking with the formula later on. It's true, it's true. Sometimes when they change those theme songs, but you know, personally, I like uh, the later Boy Meets World theme song to the earlier seasons. All right, Paul, you, you're you're leaving me behind on this because even <laughs> though I am a child of the '90s, like I had just passed Boy Meets World by, like I was, I oh, was boy, just, I was, obs- I was obsessed. I could, I should, should we, okay, we'll do, we'll save the Boy Meets World chat for a different cast. Bro, I, what other cast could we be saving it for, Paul? You know, we, we can tie it into Cabin Fever. We can make it a horror somehow, I think. Oh my God, though. Oh, I, I do have a way to tie it in. I do have a way to tie it in. There is a phenomenal horror episode of Boy Meets World. A really, really good one. Uh, a takeoff of sort of Scream uh and and it's it's they're all trapped in a classroom and someone's killing people off um and they're dressed in sort of the scream costume and jennifer love hewitt guest stars in the episode Uh, jennifer love hewitt yeah yeah it's very very good um and it's sort of a halloween episode uh yeah it's 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 great so you know boy meets world there's a tie into horror we made it work on the hammer pub we did we did the yeah, no. I, I, I think you and I have talked about this. We we both share an equal obsession with, like, late 90s Jennifer Love Hewitt, do we not? Yeah, that's fair to say. <laughs> now, I don't know if that drives my, uh, my fandom for I Know What You Did Last Summer even more, but it sure as hell doesn't hurt. I, it helps. I mean, I Know What You Did Last Summer is filled with so many people I love from the 90s, though. Like... It, if it was just Jennifer Love Hewitt, I, I think I'd still obviously love the movie. But the fact that we get Sarah Michelle Gellar, 
we have Freddie Prince Jr. You know, it, we 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 get a lot of our favorite folks. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Time. Hey, you're you're just gonna you're 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 gonna name everybody but Ryan Phillippe? Like you're just gonna just gonna leave him it's out in the cold? Well, he was, but he played a great asshole. He was a great asshole. And I do love Ryan Felipe. I mean, we could talk about Cruel Intentions all day long as well. And that's another movie that has such a great cast, you know, that that elevates stuff. I remember when that came out, critics pissed all over that movie. And I... I, I I didn't even catch it in theaters, man. And I, I kind of regret that because when I eventually did see it, I was like, no, this is actually really good. This is, this is, oh, yeah, I, I, I haven't seen it in a while though. So I don't, I don't know how well it holds up, but uh, I mean, yeah, I don't know if it's age. I mean, I'm sure I'd still like it just because of the nostalgia value, but I have no idea how that movie plays now in a 2021 lens. <laughs> Yeah, oh god. It's probably why does it feel like <laughs> why is it that I can't think of a single thing in that movie that's problematic and yet my overall feeling well, is probably really probably well, I can't that's the thing. I can't remember most of the movie, but but my overall feeling is kind of like, oh, well, this is probably pretty rough. But isn't the whole thing he's trying to seduce this girl so he can bang his sister? Like isn't that the premise? <laughs> Isn't it like a dare or a bet or something? Or no, I mean, she's gonna. It's it's pretty it's pretty messed up, but but it's 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 well done, you know. Um, but I have no idea if like morally, yeah, I don't know. I don't know morally where it stands. I don't know if it's just like sort of supposed to be over the top and crazy, and that's what it's doing, or if it actually has some sort of message. That much I can't recall, but um. Maybe we should watch it. Maybe that should be our homework. We checked that out this week. (laughs) Okay, you heard it here first, folks. Next week, in advance of our uh, chat on the evil of Frankenstein, Paul and I will be discussing our decades in the making rewatch of Cruel Intentions. Um, That said, Paul, as far as watching stuff goes, uh, I don't know. It's been about a week since we did the, the big annual best of 2020 top 10 lists except there weren't always 10 movies on those lists episode uh what have you seen since man have you did you listen to any of that episode uh did you check it out did you i haven't listened back to it yet um i'm curious because it was it was definitely a fun recording but i have not given it a listen uh have you uh checked any of it out I, well, yeah, I had to make like some edit notes on it. I just had to listen through it to proof it a bit to make sure everything was good before I sent it on. And uh, yeah, no, I think it wound up being a lot of fun. Uh, you know, I, I think Foy would be the first person to tell you that he was salty as hell in that episode. Uh, I think Feeney yeah. was concerned about, uh, you know, the <laughs> some of his uh, social media slapdowns, which I think in you know retrospect were all completely fine. Uh, I, I, I do take issue with... Uh, and I know why he did it, but I, I I take issue with Foy painting your delivery as being a bit slow <laughs> because that was just setting I'm up slow. the idea that he was a motor mouth coming right after you. I get that. I no, you're not slow. There's a difference between being slow and measured. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I remember reading that and thinking like, hey, wait a second, like he doesn't know Paul that well. I don't want Paul thinking like that. Foy is sliding him because I know he wouldn't do that. But then I saw that you had like liked and retweeted the post before uh, I had yeah. seen it, and I was just like, "Oh well, apparently he's fine with it." Yeah, I I don't take uh, 
I don't take offense to those to that or anything. And I, 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 I deeply respect for I mean, to be honest, it was it was cool just to be able to talk. That was the first time I'd ever talked with him, you know, but I've read his stuff and I've obviously heard him on a multitude of uh, podcasts. Uh, well, you know, the year end list previous. And I as I've told you in the past, I love the Golden Bad episode that you guys did. <laughs> Um, so I, I'm a huge fan of Foy. So really nothing he could have said would have offended me. And, and frankly, you know, if, if he did mean it as I am slow, then I would just take it. I, I would take it as a compliment that, that Foy would uh, uh, come down on me on something because that's sort of that seems like that's what he does. That's in his character. Right. Like to kind of find something funny to sort of poke at and and, uh, you know, lampoon in some way. So. Um, no, I, I, uh, I didn't take any offense to it. And I, I had a really good time on there. I mean, if anything, I, I was worried I'd come off as like sort of maybe nervous because I was talking to two people that I hadn't ever really interacted with, but, um, overall I had a really good time recording it. Good. Yeah, I did too. I did too. It's always fun to do those episodes. Uh, maybe we can do more of them throughout the year. Maybe we won't have to use the end of the year as an excuse to get everybody together again. It would be, well, uh, I know I somehow promised myself into doing that damn Stone Man episode, so I'm going to have to bite that <laughs> bullet at some point. I, I could not believe you committed to that. <laughs> I just want it out of my life. I figure if I do it and be done with it, I'll never have to hear about it again. That's true. I don't know happen. how I'm going to get through that movie again. We'll we'll see how that goes. Uh, alcohol will be necessary to get through that Stone Man I, episode. I have not ever seen it. I've just, you know, heard tales uh, of <sighs> its misery. So I'm I'm thinking I'm going to have to watch this thing to you know, really I, fully appreciate what's going on. I feel bad being so vocal bashing a movie because making any movie is hard. Like, right. if you've ever tried, it's tough. Obviously, nobody sets out to make a bad movie. I'm sure everybody had the best of intentions, you know, in, in trying to craft that movie. It's just I I just I just can't lie about how tough it is to get through for me. Right. Like I, but but at the same time, here's the thing. You know, we change as viewers, even in a couple of years' time. So you know, I might get a couple of drinks in me, turn it on, and I might find it to be a complete gas. We'll see. Um, I don't I don't feel like that's going to be the case, but you know, you never know. <laughs> You never know. Uh, you never know. <laughs> I feel like it's going to be trudgery, but uh, you know, maybe I'll see in it something that reveals it to be the hidden gem that uh, Foy has painted it as. We'll see. I don't know when we'll see. It's uh, you know, twenty twenty is already twenty twenty one rather is already bad enough. So I don't know if I need to add Stone Man to to my life anytime soon. Maybe after I get the vaccine, then you know, once things are looking up. After I've been back to a movie theater to catch a movie yeah. proper in a cinema, maybe then my spirits will be high enough that I can I can take the uh, blunt force trauma that is the Stone Man. We'll see. I'll be right there with you. Now, Paul, in that yeah. week since we last recorded, have you watched anything um, that you want to talk about? Yeah, I mean, I was talking to you a bit off mic. Um you know, I've been watching a lot of non-horror stuff. Um, I rewatched the new Planet of the Apes trilogy, uh, you know, Rise, Dawn, and War with my kids, which was interesting. Uh, they really, really loved it. Uh, they didn't love the very end of War. Oh, 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 oh please, please, please. Okay, let me say I one thing. I won't spoil let it, me, but... Let, uh, let me say one weird thing about Planet of the Apes. Yeah. I adore pretty much that entire franchise 
Uh, the first five films in the original series, excellent. TV oh, show, yeah. a lot of fun. Cartoon, great. Tim Burton's movie, okay, not everything. Uh, Rise of the Planet of the Apes and Battle for the Planet of the Apes. I, I always get the titles in the it's new trilogy war. mixed up. The, the third one, War. Well, okay. War Weirdly enough, as much as I liked the first two entries in the new like Caesar trilogy they've done... And in and, and point of fact, those were among my favorite movies uh, during the years that they came out. I thought they were both just flawless. Oh, yeah. Dawn is, Dawn is a masterpiece. The, the middle one, I think, unless that's the one you Dawn, know. that's right. Yes, yes, yes. Um, Dawn's the one I think is just a, un, like untouchable masterpiece. It's so good. But go Paul? on, sorry. No, no, you're good. Paul, I don't understand myself here. For whatever reason, I have not seen the third film. As much as I love the franchise, oh. and as much as I love those movies, I forget what it was exactly, but I missed it in theaters for some reason. And then it seems like once I did, uh, and keep in mind, I, I watched the first two numerous times in the theater, yeah. uh, I completely missed the third one. And man, I've been chasing that movie for I can't tell you how long. I was going to pick up the DVD, and then I was like, you know what, I'm just, I'm gonna, no, I'm, or the Blu-ray, rather. I'm going to buy the blue. And then, you know, at a certain point I was wrestling with buying a 4K player and I was like, you know what? Maybe they'll have it on 4K at some point. I should wait since I missed it in theaters and watch the best possible presentation of this movie I possibly can. Yeah. And then I never got around to picking up the 4K. So after this talk, I'm going <laughs> to yeah. hop off this mic. <laughs> I'm going to Amazon the hell out of that trilogy on 4K. And by yeah. this time next week, when you and I talk again, I will have watched the entire trilogy. All of this to say, please don't spoil the last movie. I won't. Me. I won't. I won't. I and it's. Uh, I won't say anything about the plot. I. I really love that trilogy. Um, I'm a huge Planet of the Apes fan. The original five movies. It was something I used to watch with my uh, with my mom when I was young. Whenever it would air on, it used to air on like USA, you okay. know, like or TNT, like, and they would do it on like a Sunday. So like all five movies would just air in a row. And whenever they did that, we would like get a bunch of snacks and just like hole up and watch the whole trilogy. So I, I that was like one of the few movie series that I grew up watching. Um, so I've always been a big fan and I really loved what they did with this new trilogy. And I hadn't watched any of them like since theaters. So like I hadn't seen them since they all first came out. So I've never watched the trilogy back to back um, and, you know, just kind of see how they play. And yeah, I just I think it's a great trilogy. I just really, really like it. I think the first one has some sort of like disparate elements with the other two, obviously because the director changed and sort of, uh, you know, there was more of a coherent storyline between two and three. Not that they do a really good job of tying it to Rise, but I do think Rise feels like its own thing compared to the other two, where the other two feel like sort of two halves of one whole, but all of that aside, I think it tells a really compelling story and, and gets us where we need to go for that, that series to make sense. Um, and my kids really enjoyed it. So yeah. Uh, you know, I don't need to go on and on about those movies. They're, they're great. No, I just, um, but... I just want to say, I think that's awesome that you're passing that tradition along by watching planet of the apes movies with your kids. That's, that's so cool. Yeah. And we're going to do, I, I, I really wrestled with what order to show them. And I opted to show them the new ones first because I, I think felt that's smart. Like they would fall in love with that. And now I think they're going to be more willing to go back 
and watch the old ones. Um, so we're going to do the original Planet of the Apes soon. That's kind of next on the list. Um, and we've also been like rewatching all the Pixar films because again, it's like I haven't seen most of those since they came out. Not that this is horror related, but so we we what we like to do is we like to pick um, series or themes and kind of like go down that rabbit hole and whenever we have movie nights. So, yeah, we're going to do the uh, originals next. So I'll have more to report on that soon. Um, but the big movie I watched you, this, you week... are, you are like the coolest cinephile dad. Like that's, <laughs> that's awesome. I uh, love that you do. Well, that. Hopefully, uh, hopefully they, they appreciate it when they're older. <laughs> we'll see. But, um, the big thing I watched this week was a uh, promising young woman which I believe you watched as well. When you say you believe I watched it, do you mean that we may have spent the better part of a day and a half texting at one another? I I think that's what I mean. I also think I mean that like, were it not for you watching it, I wouldn't have watched it. Because if (laughs) you recall, I was pressing play on a different movie when you texted me. You're like, oh, are you watching Promising Young Woman? And I was like, that's available? Because I just, you know, I wasn't paying attention. I didn't know it was available to rent yet. And the minute you put that into my brain, I was like, well, shit. And I took the disc out and I switched over to VOD and I paid the $20 to watch that movie because it's been so highly anticipated. I didn't you even, know, dude, I didn't forever. bat an eyelash, which is the first time for a $20 rental fee. I can yeah. say that was the yeah, case. yeah, you're right. I didn't I just, even think about it. It was, it, you know, it was just, yeah, of course. If I can watch it, I will pay whatever I need to pay. <laughs> I usually have to have like that little sort of inner wrestling match, that monologue with myself where I'm like, okay, it's going to be out on Blu-ray in no time. If you can just hang on, you well, don't just have to piss this $20 away over nothing. With Promising Young Woman, I saw this like 1999. I was like, well, okay, click. Yep, and it's it's hard too because my wife's voice always pops into my head where she's like, you have 200 <laughs> movies upstairs that you've not seen. <laughs> Literally never seen. You know, you've bought all of these movies and you're going to pay to rent one. <laughs> Like when you can just go upstairs and get one, but I'm like, well, that's not the point. I want to see this one right now, you know. So it's well, you know, you're, you're, it's I, and hopefully she won't listen to this. But your your wife is not wrong, but neither <laughs> no, still is she right. So I'm just throwing that out there. So. Well, she ended up. I ended up watching Promising Young Woman twice in 24 hours because after I watched it, I realized, oh, she would probably like this. So I rewatched it with her the next morning. So she ended up so appreciating that's, that's that's two viewings. That's yeah. that's that's uh three people across those two viewings having watched that. That's you saved like ten dollars. Yeah. Essentially. Exactly. I saved money. Yeah. Is the way to I, look at this. I don't know why she doesn't see it that way. That's just it doesn't make any sense to me. Um uh, I, I would be the friend that she doesn't like. She's like, amazing. She was... <laughs> my wife is my best friend, so she's great. And she yeah. may listen to this. So. <laughs> I love you, Shannon. Um, Shannon, hello. I'm Jinx. We've never actually formally met. Uh, for that matter, Paul and I have never formally met. Uh, point of fact, weird. I don't think I've ever spoken to you at all. But understand that all of my snark is usually rooted in a place of love. I think she knows. Uh, yeah. No, I mean, um, and it is funny that I'm like being a shitty husband in in lieu of the movie we're talking about. You know, because. <laughs> Kind of makes sense. Like my my nice guy routine is just sort of bullshit, right? I mean, that's <laughs> microaggressions. 
I imagine you like like renting that movie in secret in the dark and getting five minutes into it and then just hearing your wife imitating Carrie Mulligan's voice right behind you like, what are you doing? <laughs> we talked about this. Uh, no, she's she's super cool. Like, I'm making it sound like she's so like over my show. She actually lets me get away with murder with the movies I buy. So it's like I... I have no room to uh, complain, but yeah, no promising young woman. Uh, I guess. What did you think, Jinx? <laughs> uh, well, Paul. Um, so, God, I don't know what a good entry point for this conversation is. How the hell did we do it in text? Um, so, <laughs> the experience of just watching the movie was such. Um, I enjoyed the living hell out of watching the film, the bulk is say 90% of the movie. Mm-hmm. And then, and it, let me go ahead and say this. There is no way that Paul and I are going to be able to discuss this movie at length without getting into spoilers. I mean, if we didn't get any spoilers, then, you know, I, the conversation would be relatively pointless, such as the nature of that movie. If you have not yet watched promising young woman, skip ahead by about five minutes and uh, or or better yet, stop the podcast and go watch Promising Young Woman, because no matter which side of the fence that we fell on, I would say that it's absolutely worth watching no matter what. Um, all that said, when I watched the movie, I enjoyed the hell out of it. I thought Carrie Mulligan was I, her performance in the movie is a knockout. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I thought the movie, even for as. <sighs> it, it's here's the sad thing. Paul is that I nearly said for as for as cartoonish as it is at times, but the thing is, is that it's not cartoonish at all. Like it, it for for the sort of <laughs> microscope that it puts, you know, uh, 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 you know, as that toxic masculinity under. Like it just it's it feels broadly drawn and yet at the same time uh, very sort of insightful and kind of it's it's just awful to watch at the same time too and. It probably better than any other movie of its type really sort of wonderfully places you in the shoes of its heroine um, and for better and worse throughout the course of the movie. And but she's such a wonderful character and she's such a strong character and smart character and a very sort of like there for as dark as her backstory is and for as, you know, um Let's say is see well, well yeah I think it's right to say for as crazy as some of the stuff that she does early on in the movie, um you 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 always understand where it's coming from and you understand why and it's always fun more than anything to watch her sort of enact her vengeance you know bit by bit by bit, and then the ending of the movie comes and it's kind of a gut punch and it feels I think narratively entirely appropriate. Um, I, I, it feels like the ending is sadly kind of inevitable. And so my reaction to the movie, once the credits hit was my God, what a movie, what a great film. This is, you know, I don't know if it counts as a 2020 movie or not. I know it was released around December, but you know what? If your movie was released in December of 2020, uh, uh, during the middle of a pandemic, then I'm not counting it as a movie until it was available to watch on VOD. So for me, Promising Young Woman is a 2021 film. And as such, even though it's January, I'm ready to pretty firmly say that this is likely going to wind up on my best of the year list, you know, come 
about a year from now. The problem with the movie for me um, is is the thing that I wrestle with is ultimately what happens in in the final say ten minutes of the film. Uh, again, I think narratively it makes entirely you know. Uh, well, why am I dancing around spoilers when I just gave people a spoiler warning? So essentially, should we discuss the plot? Should we get that far into it or should we dance around it all? Uh, um, okay, so here's my inclination. And you know me. I, I, it's really – it's such a new movie and it's one, of, it's one of those movies that to spoil it would actually sort of hurt the process of watching some of it. Yeah. Like, for example, my wife asked me what it was about before we started it. And I was like, I almost don't know how to tell you because it like the first scene wants you to see the movie as a certain genre. Right. Like right from the get go, it wants you to interpret what's happening from through a certain genre lens that it then will alter. Uh, And it continues to alter it as it goes. And that's part of the brilliance of the film is that it's constantly playing with audience expectations, not just around what the character is going to do, but what the genre they're existing in is likely to do. Um, what I'll say about the movie, and again, I, you know, I'm I'm probably not the audience that most people like would... My opinion on this movie matters a lot less, I think, than like certain, like the perspective of, um, you know, like a female perspective or or a minority perspective or someone who's actually suffered the hands of, you know, suffered at the hands of abuse or something along those lines. Um, you know, but but what I I do think, though, I do think that this movie was made for. In a way, one of its target audiences is men and yes, it's, and it's there to challenge them around what they think they are. Um, this movie's populated by a lot of relatable, nice guys, right? Like it, yeah. at the outset, on the surface, like very nice guys. And that's, I, a, that's I have, a theme. I have known every and, single one right, of those and, and frankly, and this isn't, you know, whatever, but it's like, I think there's moments in those 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 guys where you're like, oh yeah, I've been, I can see myself saying some of those things. Not the horrible stuff, but like, you know, there's moments where Adam Brody's talking in the bar and I'm like, oh, I've had that conversation with other guys to be, you know, like to be nice and like try to get them to see things a certain way. Um, and the movie's sort of an expose around what what is and isn't OK and the systemic cultural system that's been constructed to keep women down and put them in a position to be sort of victimized and then have no possible outlet, you know, for not just vengeance, but for justice. Um, And that's the true horror of the film and where it all goes is the epitome of that kind of theme. And I, I was really taken by it for the obvious reasons, because I mean, I'm not going to sit here after talking about that movie and say, like, I think I'm a nice guy. You know, that's the worst possible thing I could say. Um, <laughs> and that's not even really what I would mean. Right. But I, I and but I think it's important as a as a society that we look at some of these truths 
we acknowledge them and we realize like things have to change behaviorally on a base rudimentary level regardless of whether we're talking to other guys or women or a mixture of both like it can't just be on the surface that that is when it matters it has to be when we're alone like guys talking together alone have to hold each other accountable to these microaggressions um that's the only way this stuff ever changes and and the other element of that is the self-serving nature of men in general. <laughs> you know what I mean? Is that like every character in this movie, for the most part, with the exception of one notable character who's used as sort of a, um, a very big part of sort of the finale plan. Every single person, when it comes down to it, when they're under the gun, they're worried about themselves. They're worried about what's going to happen to them. That's the only time they ever actually give a shit when something terrible is happening is how is this going to affect me and what excuse can I throw out there, you know, that that'll make it to where this isn't my fault. So I can't be held accountable Um, as opposed to caring about somebody else. (laughs) You know, there's a great running theme of no one remembering um, and I guess this is a small plot detail, um, but but the the Carrie Mulligan character is not. And this is an interesting element of the movie. I guess I, you said spoilers. I'll say this: the Carrie Mulligan I did, character. I did, but I think is not right, avenging. So. Yeah, she's she's not avenging herself. She's avenging her friend. Um, like this isn't something that happened specifically to her. This is something that happened to someone she loved. And one of the running themes is that no one remembers that girl's name. Yeah, and just just to let people know, because I don't know if we've even given them the basic plot setup, uh, but to better sell the movie, just to let people know, like, Carrie Mulligan plays someone... Okay, I'm just going to read the uh, the small IMDb synopsis, which is... Uh, <clears throat> a young woman, traumatized by a tragic event in her past, seeks out vengeance against those who crosses her path. Or those who crossed her path, rather. Um... That's not really the movie at all, but it's it gives you a rough idea of where its starting point is. Um, yeah, and no, I think you're right, Paul. I, I, I wouldn't want to completely spoil the ending. I don't want to spoil the ending at all, but at the same time, like the the ending is sort of. I think the ending is what's going to leave people wrestling with it the most. If they wrestle with it at all, maybe yeah, maybe yeah. it's a slam dunk for some people. Well, I and. <clears throat> I don't oh, fully, I don't feel fully feel that way. Like I don't think, like I, or I do it. Again, story wise, it makes perfect sense. Uh, and I think you and I were texting about it. And one of the things that I, I was going to tweet at, maybe I did tweet it, but you know, I noted that like to me, it seems to be two different movies. Like you know, they're happening at the exact same time. Like one is much like you said. Like one of the movie's major concerns is kind of like this, you know, omnipresent, like sort of toxic masculinity that the heroine and uh, by extension, you know, it seems all women have to, you know, constantly face. And, but then there's also like, you know, her own personal story, her own backstory. There's this kind of sense of her having this misplaced survivor's guilt, you know, like, and to me, the ending of the movie is, like just an inevitable conclusion of the one, like dramatically it makes total sense where the movie winds up to me. But as an examination of a culture, 
the movie's ending feels like a betrayal of that theme, you know, like narratively the movie's ending thematically, it really bugs the living shit out of me. Well, I think uh, a couple things, and I think, I think it's supposed to, right. I think it's a complicated ending that I don't think is supposed to feel good. (laughs) I think it's supposed to be like, Oh, I like some of this, I guess, but like at what cost sort of thing. But it's also a harsh it's hitting you with the harshness of the truth that like literally that that would have to happen for accountability to occur that's how far it would have to go to get any semblance of accountability for these people and that's why the system is so fucked up right like that's kind of how i'm landing on it in the end but i but your read is totally val i mean I've been really kind of checking out different people's reviews and reads on this movie and, and they're all right. You know what I mean? Like everybody's right. The people who hate it, they're right. The people who love it, they're right. There isn't a, I mean, that's true of every movie, but I think in this movie particularly because of what it's talking about and the, what it's dealing with, like you're going to bring your own personal experience into this. And for people who've experienced things that, that this resonates with them on a very, very personal real level, and they don't want to see what happens at the end of this movie happen. Like that's valid, you know, and that, and the way they feel is completely valid. And I, I think that's, what's so special about this film though, is that it's, it's causing a lot of conversation and it's conversation that really needs to happen. And I think like, it's hard to deny no matter where you fall on, on the ending that this movie is important and it's well-made um, and that it's coming from a place that is attempting to spark positive change, you know, in, in, in our culture. Um, there's a great, uh, you, you, the Horror Queers podcast with uh, uh, Trace Thurman and Joe Lipset just did a Patreon episode on uh, on this movie. And I was listening to some of it today. And it's they do a really good job of breaking down not just the movie, but like the different interpretations of it from the different lenses um, much more eloquently than than I can. Um, So I definitely would recommend anybody that's, you know, a fan of of theirs or that podcast to check that out. Um, But, yeah, I mean, I I just think it's my take is more that I I think it's really great that is causing this kind of conversation. Um, and I think that's what it's sort of designed to do. No, I hear you. Uh, I will say early on uh, in our conversation here, I it sounded like I'm sure that I was balking at the notion that, you know, men couldn't review this movie or or the fact that we're, you know, men's voices aren't necessarily the ones that need to be heard when it, you know, comes to this movie and the type of story that it's telling. I, I in a weird way, and I understand and I appreciate that, that, that point of view. And most often I, I, would agree with that stance when it comes to movies of this sort of really, honestly, let's most movies. Um, but <laughs> in, you know, in this particular case, just because of the subject matter that it's wrestling with, like I, 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 I want to read loads of like men's reviews on this film. Like I want to see how they took it. I want to see who, you know, I, I, I would be very curious to read some reviews out there from guys who bristled at a lot of the stuff that was in the movie that were. I made imagine on... it's. Oh, sorry. 
No, no, I, I, I think I know what you're about to say, and I agree with you. Um, <laughs> I, I would, yeah, but I would, but here's the thing: I would, I would love to know if those guys who would normally bristle at that sort of thing, who would feel genuinely uncomfortable at having that mirror held up at them, I, I would be very curious to see how that finds its way in the print, how telling some of those reviews would wind up being. And hopefully, you know, this is maybe the the optimist in me, you know, whether or not the movie did affect some sort of positive change in certain types of men, you know, I, I, so I, I've kind of been scouring too, to try and prize away what little uh, nuggets <laughs> that I could find. Unfortunately, I, I will say I haven't found much in the way of it, but, um, but no, I've also at the same time, like it's been very sort of, my own appreciation of the movie has been helped considerably by seeking out a, a, a lot of women who have written about the movie on Twitter and, you know, there have been links to blogs and there have been reviews that have been posted out there. Maybe we can post some on our page here. Uh, I know a lot of people don't use the comment section, but maybe they'll check out the show notes. You never know. Um, and just reading those points of views have really helped me sort of better appreciate the movie and its ending. You know, I, I never would have expected that women would make up the bulk of critics that I've read who wind up ultimately being kind of staunch defenders of that ending, you know? Um, so it, it, it's, it's, it's an interesting film. I think you're right. It's great that it's gotten people talking. Um, I, I, either way, I still think it's one of the best movies I'll likely see all year. But again, I've not gotten to the point where that ending <sighs> it, it still doesn't sit well with me. Right. And I and I and I know that it's not. Here's the thing: I'm fine with being disturbed by a movie, you know, especially if that's ultimately its point. I just don't know that I've gotten to a place where the ultimate message that that ending conveys is something. I, I see. I I understand what your point of view is, and mm-hmm. I wish I saw that movie, you know, but I haven't sure. yet. I've seen, it, I've seen it twice, and I'm not seeing quite the same movie you are. And. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I hope in a rewatch that. that I eventually do, because like I said, for everything that I do love, I mean, it's practically everything in the movie. Uh, you know, I just, I adore it so much. Either way, I think I would definitely recommend that everybody listening to this podcast definitely go out of your way to try and see this movie. 20 bucks is a hefty price tag for VOD, but it's definitely worth it, I think. If for no other reason than Carrie Mulligan's performance, she is absolutely incredible in the film. Yeah, and it's worth noting that the entire supporting cast is great. Um, like her she's i mean not to diminish her performance but i I think it's a movie filled with top-notch performances you know what i mean um like i i i love uh um like her parents are played by clancy brown and uh was it jennifer coolidge yeah stifler's mom yeah right and stifler's mom begat Carrie Mulligan's character in this film, which right. I think is and like, amazing. But they're and they're great. They're really good. Like and Clancy Brown actually has some like somewhat some very small touching moments in the movie that he just kills. And like Allison Brie shows up. Um and both you have a lot of like Molly like... Shannon's in it and she's good. Like there's a lot of great small moments with character actors um, or actors that you just kind of love that you don't see very often The you know, the term character actor is apt, but I also sometimes feel like that's viewed as sort of a diminishing term. And I, I don't see it that way, of course. And it's um, curious but, that know. all of them, you know, if you think about the cast, you have Clancy Brown, you have Jennifer Coolidge, you have, uh, um, Oh God, McLovin, uh, Christopher Mintz plus, I think. I don't yeah, know how to that's it. it. 
Yeah. Um, you know, Alison Brie, you, I mean, it's a solid supporting cast, but it's also a supporting cast made up of people who, you know, can, can go broad with their performances at times and be kind of bigger than life. And I think it was really interesting that this supporting cast is populated by character actors who are kind of known for those, you know, larger than life roles. And then they well, all play very subtle in the film, which I think is kind of brilliant. And they're all like the nice guys too. Which plays into it, like they're all they're all actors that when you see them, you're like, oh, I like them. They're the, they're you know they seem like nice normal people, which is what this movie is attempting to indict. Like you you talk about toxic masculinity, right? And the way that usually shows up in a movie is like um, the the new craft movie, right? That deals with toxic masculinity in a very overt way. Yeah. Um, but like this movie brings you toxic masculinity in the most dangerous fucking manner possible, which is it's hidden behind someone acting super nice. And that is the scariest kind of toxic masculinity that is the easiest to hide. Um, that is ever present in our world. Um, and sometimes, and this is the most frightening element of all it's within people that don't, that truly don't believe they are exhibiting those behaviors. Like these are the people who would condemn toxic masculinity and then go do these things thinking they're nice. And that's what this movie is attempting to attack is like, you don't know you're doing this even that's how ingrained it is in you. You actually think you're nice. You know, when, when these men are like, no, but I'm nice. I'm a nice guy. Like they believe it. They're not, they're doing horrible things. But they believe that what they're doing is good. And that's so much worse than these guys who are assholes sort of on purpose, which is how it's always been painted in movies and TV. So then do you think, ah, God, I almost don't want to get into this, but I, I you know, you sparked on something there that I'm kind of curious about. That's everybody in the first three quarters of the movie. Right. That's everybody. You well, know, that's, that's everybody first... really in the whole movie for the most well, part. But, well, not really necessarily because. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, well, no, especially. No, no, no. I mean, then we're getting into the party at the end that she so crashes. The party at the end that she crashes. Right. Is not feel, filled with anybody that would even consider themselves nice guys. You know, not necessarily. I mean, sure, everybody's a hero in their own story, but those guys are sort of the stereotypical right. crap boy assholes those, those are the, are the ones she's building up to going that, after right right those are the guys that the other nice guys tell themselves they're not you right. know so it's yeah. interesting that the movie ends with you know the the you know much like you said with the craft legacy like we end with the overt type of like toxic male um you know and what a hell of a journey it is and two you know it's interesting with the uh uh Fucking but, hell, but even stuff. even him, even the main guy we're building up to, when he gets up in the room and she handcuffs him, he's like, "Oh, you don't have to worry about that. I'm a gentleman." You know what I mean? He gives that nice guy thing, like he, he even him, because he's matured and he's not call, he's not a kid anymore. You know the whole word. I was a kid, like you know it, it's it's ever present and it's how i think what the movie's saying too is the nice guy is what those assholes evolve into because they have to they have to become something that's going to be survivable in an adult world you can't act like stifler in the workplace you know what i mean like you can't be (laughs) that guy you have to fucking hide it 
and become something new, but certain elements don't change. And that's, I think, again, part of what the movie's indicting. So then, you know, if that's the case, then do you think the movie is trying to say anything uh, beyond it being just perhaps circumstantial that the oldest male that we see in the movie who isn't the father of a daughter in Clancy Brown's case, but Alfred Molina's character. Oh yeah. Well, that's a whole nother. The fact that this <laughs> male in the cast is also the one who eventually saw himself for what he had been. And it broke him, you know, he's uh, the only one that actually learned a lesson on his own based on his own morality and his own life experience. Um, and that's why, you know, she opts to sort of leave him be in a way. I mean, or, well, yeah, in, in terms of her plans for revenge. Um, because, oh man, and again, I, we're going so deep into this. Um, okay, but, so may, maybe maybe we shouldn't, maybe because, one, yeah, we're I think 45 maybe minutes we, in. Oh my maybe God. we've talked about it enough <laughs> that we've just teased our listeners enough to the point where maybe... I they think want we to covered out. a lot of good points, at least. I mean, vaguely, but hopefully in an engaging way. <laughs> Fingers crossed. And we're one movie into this uh, this pre-movie conversation. You know what? I'm just going to throw that, out a that's movie. That's the only one I have should... to talk about, to be honest. <laughs> I want to throw out one movie, and then we can go ahead and dive into uh, The Hammer, uh, as we're in this podcast. Um, last week, when we did the Best Of episode, um, Matt Feeney, pointed out a movie called um, Smiley Face Killers that was on his list. Uh, written by Brett Easton Ellis, directed by Tim Hunter, who did River's Edge and loads of uh, Breaking Bad, and I believe The Sopranos. Uh, I watched it after recording. It was like 3 a.m., and I watched that damn movie. Uh, uh-huh. It's damn good. It is not for everybody. It is a very sort of... Um, it's very much a Brett Easton Ellis story, and I mean much more along the lines of like uh, less than zero, but then you have a serial killing cult that kind of sits on the periphery of the story about this, you know, guy in college who, you know, he, he's wrestling with uh, some mental issues. Uh, he's, he's, he's got some relationship issues and basically it's just kind of this really interesting portrait of, uh, you know, a younger man trying to get a handle on life, but then you have the horror of the story constantly sitting just outside his field of vision, like constantly there waiting on him and eventually, you know, kind of, uh, you know, making themselves known to him bit by bit by bit until the final third of the movie turns into a complete horror show. Um, much like Feeney mentioned last week, there is a real theory that was uh, created by, I believe two retired, uh, New York police officers. Uh, it's called the smiley face murders theory. um, which basically the, the, the theory is that all of these drownings that have happened uh, in these various, I believe, northeastern states, uh, young men who had alcohol in their system wound up in bodies of water drowned. They believe it's the work of one person or perhaps a cult of killers uh, tied together by one thing, which is a smiley face graffiti that's been found near each of the bodies. Now, some people feel that they've debunked the theory. There are other people who believe that the theory is sound. Either way, it would make for a fascinating documentary. In fact, there is like a four-hour documentary 
on the actual case. I believe you can find it on Amazon Prime. I have not watched that yet, but it's uh, it's really chilling reading. Mm. Just uh, all of that. What's weird is is that um, one uh, there was a disappearance of a guy in Columbus, Ohio, um, who it, it's a weird, almost like borderline, almost like an Agatha Christie locked room mystery. Like, how the fuck does this happen? I believe the guy's name was Brandon Marshall. He went to a bar on a busy Friday night, a bar that had no other exits inside of a closed building that was right across the hallway. Okay, so there's a little area in Columbus, Ohio. It's a stone's throw away from OSU called uh, the Gateway. And in one of the buildings, you go up an escalator. If you turn to the left, there's the Gateway Film Center. And I've watched many movies there. Uh, JCVD, Colton July, so many great movies that my local theaters in Southern Ohio didn't have. So it was worth a two-hour trip up north. Right next door is this uh, bar called the... Uh... Oh, fucking hell. Uh, okay, I forgot the name of the bar. It doesn't matter. Anyway, it's right next door. <laughs> Security cameras all around, and back in 2007, this guy was out with buddies. He is captured coming up the escalator, going into this busy bar, which had no other exits, right? He left at one point to step just outside, step just outside, went back in. His friends lost track of him, and he basically vanished into thin air. He is not on any video camera. They've scrutinized it. Even if he had tried, like, changing clothes and sneaking out, like, there, it's like the man vanished into thin air. And, like, you know, the, the, the guy, his father tried hunting for him for years before he died in a freak accident, which is a, just a, a terribly sad story. He had, uh, he had consulted a psychic who said they would find the body in, uh, you know, water, somewhere and so eventually the disappearance was tied up in the smiley face murders theory and uh, i don't know if you get the chance to read it it's kind of like an offshoot of that case uh it's again really chilling stuff because there's nothing violent that necessarily happened there that we know about anyway it's just mm-hmm. the idea that a human being in a very busy venue under the scrutiny of security cameras can just vanish off the face of the earth without a trace like that's there's something kind of chilling about that. Really chilling about it. Uh, anyway, that's neither here nor there. I just thought it was interesting because I've been to that place so many times that I had no idea that there was something you know that noteworthy that had happened there. Uh, anyway, I watched this movie, Smiley Face Killers. Crispin Glover is in it playing, well, much like Feeny. I'm not going to reveal who he plays, but it's... it's. <laughs> but um, I will say, like, just as kind of like a really interesting character study, it works. And then as a horror movie, it really, really works. You have to wait for it. Like, um, I think a lot of people might go into it and lose patience, you know, waiting for the killers to arrive if they just want, you know, uh, 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 a horror movie with capital H happening straight away. It's not that kind of film, but I will say once a horror does hit, it is a truly horrifying film. Like, I, mm-hmm. I my sleep was restless that night. So uh, if you get the chance to watch it, Definitely worth seeing. I know Brett Easton Ellis can be kind of a polarizing figure at times, um, but I think the screenplay for the movie was pretty damn solid, and the direction is spot on. Performances are all good, and overall, definitely worth a shot. So seek it out if you can. Yeah, uh, it's it's been on my list since uh, I heard Feeney talk about it. So yeah, I'm, I'm definitely going to watch it at some point. Good deal. 
All right, man. We are fifty-two minutes in. Shall we go ahead and watch some? Uh, watch Probably. Some <laughs> I guess we should do uh, the whole thing that this podcast is about, shouldn't we? If we must. <laughs> okay, everybody out there listening, as the show notes and indeed the title of this episode, probably I hinted at, we are going to be watching a Hammer movie this evening called The Curse of the Mummy's Tomb. Uh, so no matter how you want to watch this, whether you have that original Mill Creek double feature, whether or not you bought that snazzy new 20 film uh, Mill Creek Hammer box set, or if you just want to buy it on Amazon Prime, Either way, let's go ahead and cue it up to the very beginning. I believe the first frame is black, and we're going to be going to the Columbia logo right after. Let's go ahead and cue it up, and we'll start here in five, four, three, two, one, and play. And there's Ms. Columbia and her All torch. All right, we're in. I have the, uh, the Milk Creek disc they put out before the fancy set, like with this and... Uh, I think Evil Frankenstein's on there too. Yes, that's uh, Revenge of Frankenstein. I think Revenge. Sorry, yeah, I can't keep track. I I did buy the, uh, I did buy the fancy hammer set though. Finally, nice. Uh, Have you gotten it yet? I'm, Please tell me your uh, your order hasn't gotten canceled like half the film. No, I I was really worried. I ordered it right away, um, and my ordered I got a shipping confirmation. So I think I'm one of the lucky few who got it for twenty bucks. You bastard. I know, right? And <laughs> I had just said it. I was going to wait till it was cheaper. <laughs> I'm glad you got it. I paid like 60 or 70 bucks for the damn thing. I thought I got off light considering it was going for 110 there for a while. Yeah. No, I I got lucky. There's no denying that. I'll uh, maybe I'll give away my other Mill Creek ones so people can get some free hammer movies or something. I um, uh, I will say I did manage to get that Inner Sanctum Mystery set on sale. I think I, at one point, I believe it was $7 on Amazon, but it sold out almost immediately. Wow. I think Deep Discount had it for 7 which I think drove down the price on Amazon, but Deep Discount then had to cancel all of their pre-orders. I heard people were pissed. I managed to snag it the same day from Best Buy for $12. So Damn. Yeah, you got I, a good deal there. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be diving into those because after listening to uh, – <clears throat> Talk about them on the episode that we did with Daniel. Yeah, yeah, they're very fun. Henry, uh, uh, screenplay by Henry Younger, which is kind of a funny pseudonym for Michael Carreras. Um, a takeoff of John Elder, which was uh, Tony Hines, right? Uh, yes, yeah, that was Anthony Hines' pseudonym, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's kind of funny that he went younger instead of Elder. It's a fun little thing. For his major name as Michael Carreras is to Hammer Horror History, well, Hammer History, period, this is the first horror movie that he directed for the company, and I didn't realize that. I didn't even know. Paul, I'm going to admit here, uh, as big a Hammer fan as I am, and I am, I had never seen this film. I had never seen it, too. Now, he did, um, I guess, do you count, I guess you don't count Maniac, then, because he did do Maniac. Well, yeah, he did. I would you put that more in? You know, uh, we're going back to battling labels. Here. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to get into all that. I, 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 I would. It's it's enough in that camp, though. You know what I mean? Because it's. I don't know. I, I mean, this is more. I guess this is more like traditional gothic hammer horror. Uh, than Maniac is for sure. Yeah, I mean, if we said hammer horror. Then something mummy related, I think, probably takes precedent. Right, right. Yeah. Can we talk about how surprisingly violent this opening is. Oh yeah, yeah. The hand. 
the hand. off the hand in full display in what six this was 64 well yeah it was made in 63 released in 64 so this came right at the end of their quote-unquote golden age right this was right when the golden age was kind of ending and they were starting to transition and they were going to go more into the occult um so this movie and it and you can kind of see that in the plot but yeah i think also the violence started to be ratcheted up the uh, bbfc was starting to loosening its expectations they're getting away with more but yeah you never would have seen a hand be cut off in full display in, in one of the earlier films only a few years earlier with horror of dracula man like they never would have gotten away the hell they had to cut you know, stuff out of, uh, you know, Dracula disintegrating. And now they're just lopping off limbs in full display with no cuts. Yeah, no, I was really surprised by that when I when I first saw it. And it it's a decent little opening sequence. I mean, it, it kind of gets you going. You're like, okay, what what is this movie going to be? Is it going to be that violence? Um, it starts making you wonder <laughs> what you're going to see next. And I gotta say, like, I, having not seen the movie before, not knowing that much about it, I expected on some level that this would be a follow-up to the previous movie. I knew that, you know, neither Lee nor Cushing were in it, but when I heard the name John at the beginning, I was like, oh, oh, wait, maybe? Sequel? Possibly? No, not at all. This has no connection to the previous Mummy. Uh, I would be very curious to see if the other Mummy movie that follows has any connection to it, because admittedly, I haven't seen it either. Um... But yeah, yeah, it's it, it's a curious choice, I think, given that there was at least a loose continuity with all of their Dracula films, all of their Frankenstein films, that we really have no apparent continuity with their Mummy franchise. Yeah, I was I was ta- I was thinking about that too. In that, um, it, none of them are connected. Uh, the four Mummy movies, because uh, it's this and then uh, Blood. Blood from the Mummy's Tomb, I think, um, and then the Mummy Shroud uh, are the the four Mummy movies, and I don't believe any of them have any sort of connective tissue. I think it's the only like franchise take on that they that they don't connect at all. Um, you know, unlike Frankenstein and obviously Dracula, they just kind of each do their own thing. And Carreras did the next one too, right? He did he did Blood. The Mummy's Tomb. I think he also directed that. Really? I have no idea. I think he did. Yeah. I, I don't know if that's because he just enjoyed doing a mummy movie. I And I couldn't really find a lot of information as to why he did this one. Because, you know, this came, I guess, in Hammer's filmography, when this came out, we were looking at, like, Evil of Frankenstein was 64. Uh, I think they did gorgon and right and the year before that was like kiss of the vampire and phantom was before that so this was sort of when terrence fisher was kind of wasn't he off doing a couple other things for other studios at this point i mean probably that he was a busy man by this point yeah and well he did i guess he did the gorgon so i i think i think what was going on was most of the stock players were doing other movies (laughs) And they didn't have anyone to sort of put this film together. So Carreras took it on his own shoulders. Um, But it is weird to see like a bigger title because you think of The Mummy as like a bigger title for Hammer. But they didn't bring in any of their A-listers for this. 
Sure, I'd be very curious. I did a bit of reading on the movie, and there's really no explanation as to why this movie was kind of, you know, was a B movie when, in fact, I mean, I guess The Mummy was not a huge hit for them, though, right? So were they hoping to eke out kind of like uh, something resembling the Universal Mummy franchise, maybe? Or something I think that solid, but maybe not spectacular? Uh, maybe that's the reason there was no continuity, you know, with the... Uh, Universal films, there weren't. You know, we have Imhotep yeah. in the first movie, and then was it Chorus, I think, for the following films? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I, I think that's a big part of it. And again, I think horror was starting to change. The studio was starting to change. I think they wanted to use the Mummy movies as sort of experimentation a bit to get, like I said, this movie delves a bit more into the occult than, you know, previous Hammer films. Um, there's a lot of melodrama in this movie. This movie's a weird movie. The script yeah. is very strange. And I can't quite tell. Like, we were chatting about it a little bit via text. I feel like we talked, me and you talked about this movie more than all, really any other Hammer movie we've talked <laughs> about yet. And some of it's because it's very confounding. Like, it, you can't really tell who the protagonist is, if it even has one. Yeah, no, I mean, who it, it I, who is the protagonist? Who's our lead? Who's our entry point into this tale? Like, well, I, it, it constantly changes. I mean, I think the Bray has got to be the closest thing we get to a protagonist, right? It's got to be Bray. Um, Does it, though? Like, I, I, I because think... the, movie, the movie straight up loses him at one point. You know, it's... Right. I, well, I guess we should do a rundown a little bit of what's going on. <laughs> I, you know, I'm going to leave that with you because I'm not certain I could synopsis, synopsize this movie easily beyond Oof. reading uh, a, a Wikipedia entry simply because, like, the the plot is kind of, you know, I guess viewed from one lens, it's a little simplistic. Viewed from another, it's scattershot as all hell. Yeah, um, and there's some there's some, like, colonialism stuff and, you know, like, American-European people coming into third world countries and sort of taking what they want. I do and think monetizing that's, it. I, I that's think the most successful aspect of this movie is how yeah, it handles that. But it's also kind of weakly handled. Like like there's you oh, mentioned I didn't say it was great. I'm saying it was right. probably compared to everything else at least that's so, maybe not best but definitely the most interesting thing about the movie. Yeah, and and I and I don't want to do the commentary thing right where we just like summarize what's happening on screen, but I think in this movie <laughs> it's worth sort of talking about the plot more than we usually do. Usually we kind of don't even really worry about the plot, you know, when but I feel like this movie it's very convoluted. Um and because the plot sort of jumps around a lot and doesn't spend a lot of time making you care about anybody. And then beyond that, most everybody is sort of not that likable. You know, most, the most charismatic person you get is sort of, um, the American entrepreneur who I guess is, uh, was that King? Is that Alexander King or no? Uh, yeah, I, I, it looks to me like, like Bocom or something like that. I think somebody calls him Beecham. At one point in the movie, so who the hell knows how to pronounce the name? Um, I think no. it, I think it's I think well, I'm talking about the American like showman guy, like the oh. greatest showman guy who wants to like yeah, do the, the King the, Kong thing. That the I think his name is Alexander guy. King in the movie. 
I think he's the most charismatic person in the film. He's not a likable guy. He's he's kind of a dastardly fellow, but he's he, he's he does a good enough job and he's charismatic enough that when he's on screen, I'm entertained. I'm like the most entertained when that guy's doing something on screen. Yeah, there's the movie um, has a little bit of life and spark when he's around, and plus he provides the movie with honest to god, um, you know, a conflict at times. You know, whereas the the bulk of the movie, outside of the fact that you got the mummy stalking around and offing people, it, it's really kind of bereft yeah. of that, which is crazy considering that what should be the heart of the movie is a love triangle that really isn't even a triangle when one of the points of said triangle doesn't really seem to give that much of a rat's ass about well, what his yeah, wife's off doing it, with another guy. Sure. And the love triangle. So, I mean, the scene we just watched had, uh, what was it? Uh, Giles, uh, uh, uh Daryl, yeah, whatever. Um, Giles so he's D. sort of the guy in charge of the expedition. They're there trying to excavate, um, you know, stuff from a, a, a Pharaoh's tomb, you know, the, the, the typical plot. And now the American sort of showman who financed this is saying, well, we're not going to sell this to a, a museum. We're going to go on a tour with this. And uh, Giles is sort of like, well, no, that's not what we talked about. And I won't have any part of this. So at the beginning, you sort of feel like that guy's your protagonist, that Giles is going to be it. Then it transfers over to John Bray, who's sort of his protege that's working under him. He's the one that's engaged um, to, um, uh, oh my gosh, what's her name? Oh, um, name. Uh, um, dear Lord, why can't Annette. I think of her name? Annette? Is it yes. Annette? Okay. He's engaged Are to you Annette. Me? Can you hear yeah. me now? Okay. Yeah, I can hear you now. Sorry, I cut out for a minute and I was blanking. So he's engaged to Annette and then they come upon um, Adam uh, Beauchamp, right? Or you know, I'm Beauchamp. just going to call him Adam B. Adam B. Uh, so we don't keep mispronouncing names of people in a movie I just watched. Yep. Um, <laughs> who's sort of like a wealthy patron of the arts who also has like a, a strange amount of information. I mean, this guy walks onto the frame and from second one, you're positive. He's a villain. Like it's never any question. It's so, but at the same time, the script treats it like something that's supposed to be a surprise. Am I wrong? Like, yeah, I feel like it's, it's treated like you're not supposed to know that Adam is a bad guy. And that, you know, her attraction to him is believable in a way because of that and because of his worldliness and his kindness. But he's just so clearly a villain from every little thing he does. All of his mannerisms are just like mustache twirling from the <laughs> word go. Um, and it's so unsubtle. And then because of that, you've got Bray who is so focused on worrying about, you know, where the stuff from the exposition is and are they trying to, are people trying to steal it? And Annette starts like just hanging out with this other guy and drinking with him and laughing with him and staying the night at his place immediately before she knows anything about him. And yet the first 20 minutes establishes Annette and Bray as fairly happy people. They're a happy, loving couple. They joke around. There's no weirdness between them. They seem to have like a physical relationship. There's nothing to suggest 
that things aren't okay there. So the moment she meets this other guy and starts like being completely flirtatious with him, it's, it's more frustrating and a big turnoff to all of the characters involved um, than it is intriguing in terms of a narrative. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. The, the screenplay drops the ball so many times throughout the course of this movie um, because, you know, the setup when boiled down, even though, you know, as we've talked about, like it's, a, it's the plot is convoluted and yet there was enough of a setup in so many places where there to have been, you know, some, some drama, something interesting, something to bite into while watching it. And instead we don't really have anything. It's just a series of events that happen. And, you know, the bulk of it, I hate to say, Mr. Carreras, I'm sorry. You know, the bulk of it looks and plays to be relatively pedestrian. And yet, whenever there's an action sequence or a horror sequence, he directs the living hell out of the movie then. And so it seems like maybe that was the only thing he was truly interested in in this film. And the rest of it is just kind of... You know, it feels like at the writing level and, you know, at the storytelling level, the filmmaking level, it seems like he had zero interest in the characters, zero interest in the story beyond it just being a delivery system for, curiously in this case, just a handful of fright sequences. Yeah, and I think it shows a fundamental sort of misunderstanding of human behavior. I mean he's Michael Carreras was a, a came from a wealthy family that had a lot of issues, <laughs> um, a lot of trust issues. I mean, for God's sakes, hammer sort of the company, Michael had to like buy it out from under his father who was trying to sell it behind his back. <laughs> and by the end of things, father and son weren't even talking. You know what I mean? Like it, just a crazy situation. So, there's, I, I feel that the script reflects an inherent mistrust in humanity um, that probably speaks to the man's worldview um, and it is at a detriment to the film because as a viewer, you know, one of the things that typically is the case in Hammer movies is I can usually care about some of the characters. I can get behind what they're doing. I can see them as real people. And therefore, some of the melodrama works. Usually the relationship has some stakes, but here it all just feels annoying, you know, and and maybe that's because I don't like the people involved. Maybe that's because, but really what it boils down to is I just don't understand anyone's motivation to do anything. Why, why is anyone, you know, why, why is anyone in dating anyone else? None of them like each other. Um, and they all seem to want to constantly mislead and lie to one another, but there's no payoff and it's not fun. You know, it's not like a movie where, oh, oh, it's sort of a fun thing where everyone's sort of sneaking around behind each other's backs and there's a sense of humor to it. Um, it's it's played straight. Um, Which is and weird then, given that, I mean, you know, I'm watching these people on the screen, you know, talking about them not caring about one another. You did say earlier, and I agree with you, that Bray and Annette do seem to have chemistry. And they do right. seem to, you know, what's so weird to me is, and, the, and you know, I, the worst way to critique a movie is to talk about what you would have done instead. I get it. But course, that yeah. said, you know, I can't help but point out in this case that 
given that Adam, you know, spoiler alert, uh, is, you know, somewhat supernatural in nature, then it would have been the easiest thing in the world to do a riff on something that's already been present in previous mummy movies, you know, going all the way back to the Carl Frund movie, which is to simply have her be a reincarnation, to have him be smitten with her and have their attraction have some sort of supernatural basis. Then you have a reason for it. And instead, in this movie, it, you know, it, it it all seems rather pointless the way it's presented anyway. Um, well, and that's my thing. Is like, at the beginning, I cared about them as a couple, but the minute that she starts to stray, there's no reason for her doing it. So it just makes her look like a bad person. You know what I mean? And I'm like, well, that's not really fair to the character. That's just poor writing. Because clearly like as the movie progresses you're supposed to sort of think that she doesn't really love bray that she's not really super excited to be engaged to him that she's kind of just doing it because it's what fell into her lap but the movie doesn't earn that it doesn't earn her feeling that way um it wants to just do it and bad writing like that always kind of annoys me you know because it's it would have been so easy to just restructure the first act but that's another issue with the with the film is structure wise not i mean you don't get to a mummy until an hour into this 70 minute movie you know or 79 minute movie like it takes way too long to get to the meat and potatoes of what this movie is promising (laughs) and and yet at the same time i will say one thing and it only points to a failing later on in the film but there is a tension in these early scenes with the three of them where you can tell she is attracted to him and you can tell oh, that yeah. Bray is a bit put off by that. So you're thinking, oh, okay, I see what the conflict is going to be here emotionally amongst the three characters who are obviously going to be our leads. Except that's really not at all. Well, yeah, like this, I was not yet put off. I mean, part of the problem with this commentary is like I'm talking about how I felt towards the end of the film (laughs) versus how I felt when I was watching it at this scene where we're at right now, I was still okay. I wasn't yet turned off by this because I I could be totally fine with her being sort of like smitten with him because he has this sort of like, like you said, otherworldly era uh, about him, era, era, era about him. Um, And obviously that would make uh, Bray mistrustful. And had that been it, and she was just like, okay, and then she was still sort of with her fiancé, and, like, they had their relationship. But that's not what happens. She just immediately discards Bray, and he just kind of, to me, it feels like he just kind of throws up his hands. He's like, well, fuck it. You know, she likes him now. And, like, he doesn't really try to intervene. Um, He just kind of watches it happen. Um, And then the movie sort of changes the character dynamics because it needs to for the plot to go in the direction it wants it to go. Um, And it really feels like just new pages were inserted while they were shooting and they just didn't bother to make it make any character sense. It also Um, feels like maybe, maybe new pages were inserted. Maybe yeah, watching it back now, like it, it honestly feels like it's a first draft movie. Like it it feels like they got the building blocks in place and they didn't bother to refine any of it. I mean, there's some great ideas there. I mean, I I really like the idea of him being, I mean, I guess we're doing commentary. I mean, I like the idea of him being the guy from that time, like being that this ancient, you know, person that's been alive, very much like Dracula. You know, someone who's been around for generations, who's watched the world change and grow, 
um, and has kind of been waiting for his moment. Um, I think that's a cool character, and I like that he isn't, that it feels like a different kind of vampire, which is right in Hammer's wheelhouse, and a different kind of mummy. Um, And I think had they done a bit more with it, uh, it would have, it could have worked really well. I also, again, can't stress enough how much I like the Alexander King taking the mummy on the road idea. That is a great idea for a mummy movie. That, I was going to say, that's the movie. I know. I mean, when, when he does his show, you know, that stupid, like, like the voiceover thing and they're like going, you know, his little show that he puts on. I love that. That should just, to me, I'm like, that's the trailer. Just have him do the show. And that's like your trailer stuff. Um, and then play it up and have it be fun. Because this could have been a really fun money, mummy movie. It feels like there's so many good ideas. Like there's several movies worth of ideas in this movie. That they just truncated down and smashed together so that they would work. And then all of it just feels like wasted potential. Because halfway through the movie, these characters die. They get killed off. And the relationships don't really pay off. And then nothing really comes of it. Paul, she is eye-fucking the hell out of him already. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, um, fair, I, because we, he, he does look like, uh, you know, I, I is this the movie that reveals that Joel Edgerton is actually an immortal? I don't know. But uh, is that his dad? Who knows? <laughs> but there's a... I, there's I will say... Um, twin, maybe. <laughs> this is another movie with uh, Bernard Robinson set design. Um, and he did a great job. I mean, I, I really think that the sets, the look of everything, you know, it, it is transformative and it, it does it does really suck you in. So I think like the look of the movie generally is pretty solid. Is this um, our one hammer pub scene? Has the hammer pub been reduced to a crate? Yeah, this movie doesn't really have a satisfying hammer pub. Um, although I don't know that the. Did the first mummy really? I mean, it had the party. I don't know if it really has like a pub scene. You know, I, I think we've hit upon why the mummy movies by and large under Hammer's output are kind of disappointing. There's no damn Hammer pub. <laughs> I do like the, uh, I do like this. And I think these plates are pretty well designed. Like when he's walking through sort of the story. And of course it's a mummy movie. So we have to have like a flashback. Two mummy times. It looks like they were made yesterday. Yeah, it does. But <laughs> I mean, they're beautiful. Don't get me wrong. But I, would, I, I think I, they I did a good job. I mean, I think it looks. You know, you could have dirtied it up a little bit, probably. You you <laughs> to make hit it look those not as glossy, but you hit those very plates with a little bit of like black wash, and then it would have looked amazing. Like it's just. But you have to remember too. They were probably thinking, okay, like the prints that are going to show in theaters, it probably was going to be a little bit, you know, like it wouldn't have looked as clear as it looks to us on Blu-ray in 2021. I don't think they were worried about, you know, home exhibition and people analyzing these things in the way. I think that's a big thing we have to remember is like in their eyes. Okay. People will see these things for seconds and it will not be the thing they remember about this movie. Yeah, but uh, but how many okay but look at terrence fisher's output and how he deals with uh you know light and shadow like that man could push a oh scene. well yeah like I mean, brides had, of dracula like fisher was directed concern for him no and had fisher directed this film it'd be a totally different thing like 
I mean, the, all the shit with the characters that we're talking about would not have been a problem. He would have worked that out. Um, and and that's the thing is this this movie is lack. I mean, at the end of the day, this movie is lacking a creative voice at the top that is that has a clear vision. Michael Carreras did not have a clear vision, um, and he wrote the screenplay and he directed it, and he you know was in a play a position to be like one of the head producers. So no one could say no to him. And I think it's clear that that's the case when you watch this film. I mean, maniac is a, is a better film than this, but it's also not one of hammer's strongest outings. But yeah, I mean, I do like, I do enjoy mummy flashbacks. Paul, I'm sorry. I've been talking on and off I was for the last say, have, minute. I had my mic muted. I'm sorry. I, uh, I was wondering. I was like, there's dead silence. I guess I should talk again. <laughs> <laughs> sorry about that. That's uh, never no. a good thing for a commentary. <laughs> Absolutely not. No, I, I agree with you. Um, I do think it's interesting that yeah, you know, I, I would be very curious to see what Carreras's follow-up Mummy movie is like. If he learned any lessons or if it's maybe just as... Uh, you know, just as weak an effort because apparently he took the reins from another director um, on that film. So I, I, I'd be curious to see, because here's the thing again, there are flashes in this movie uh, of brilliance. You know, they're, they're brief, they're few and far between, but they're there, you know, and if this was yeah, one of his first efforts as a director, he does get a lot right. Um, I think that's a voice that could have, you know, been, uh, been, been supported and, Oh God, that looks like it hurts. Um, but you know, or, you know, was this just kind of a vanity thing where it was his company and by God, he wanted to give that directing thing a shot once or twice. I I don't know. And there's not a lot of information on curse out there. I mean, at least readily accessible. I know there's been a million books written on hammer, and I'm sure there's there's stuff out there. I need to I need to improve my my hammer library at home. Um, but in terms of just you know the the Blu-ray has no special features. There's no real like making ofs of this thing. There's no real accounts of on on set things that I can really locate. It's it's all very sparse, um, and it really feels like this movie was made in a slew of other films. And I don't know that it was given a lot of attention. It feels like this. Yeah, this was definitely sort of a more of a B feature compared to some of the other things that we're making. And yeah, I I mean, my guess is given that he wrote the screenplay that he wanted to direct it, you know, I don't, I doubt that this was something he took because he had to, whereas you're right on blood from the mummy's tomb. I believe he, he had to take it over, but that movie is fairly well regarded. I saw, yeah, I've, I've, I've seen, I've seen it, but it's been a long time and I need to rewatch it. Um, but I remember liking it. I gotta admit, I've not seen it either. I weirdly enough for all the hammer films that I've seen, you know, not just the two big franchises, but you know, a lot of the one-offs, the mummy movies, for whatever reason, I had never, uh, yeah. I didn't keep up with, I guess, beyond the initial Lee Cushing joint. So, well, uh, Blood has a really nice Scream Factory release. Ooh, okay, yeah, I'll with like decent features and a, a commentary. So, um, that's... I have 
one of the ones I have on my list to do as a uh, as a column. So I'll probably nice. write about it eventually. But um, but yeah, I do love the hucksterism here. Like I, oh, and yeah. that's the, that's the movie that I really do want to see. Out of all of this stuff presented, like even if the love triangle stuff had been done well, it wasn't. But had it been done well, that would still be less interesting to me than watching this guy. You know, sort of. Well, uh, oh, that is a good looking mummy. I do like the mummy. I saw some complaints online uh, about that. I also like that close up of Adam. I like, you know, given what we know about Adam, the look he gives it. Mm-hmm. But man, see that like the way that Fred Clark, the actor who played Alexander King, performs this role is just so. I I just love him. I mean, he 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 really gives off a William Castle vibe. Yeah. Oh my God! To totally. Uh, which is funny because this came out what a year after Old Dark House, so they had just worked with Castle. You think that so? You got to wonder it at all? If, that, if that, yeah, because <laughs> Carreras worked with Castle. Oh, in in some ways too, I wonder if this guy is sort of a proxy for Carreras because he was sort of that guy at the head of the company, shilling their their stuff, and you know, I would not say really maybe... giving a shit about the the quality of it, more about making money. I would say I wonder if maybe his dad. Like if this was like, you know, yeah. some yeah. sort of takedown of both his father <laughs> yeah. and William Castle. Well, they, you know? they had such a fucked up relationship. And I mean, I mean, it all exploded. I mean, really, that's why, in my opinion, it, it was that rift that really sunk Hammer on top of everything. I mean, because it, it, it they just worked together and actually planned things out appropriately. Like the company did not have to fall the way that it did. Um, but I digress. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I do wish that it had stuck with that character. I would have been completely fine with, uh, with, uh, you know, the Carl Denham type, you know, King just, you know, striking upon various crazy notions. If he had been loosely based on Castle, you know, I'd have been fine with the scene with him putting a hook in uh, the mummy's ass and flying him over a, an audience, you know? Oh, I'd be down for that. <laughs> yeah, I was. I was. Can you imagine? I, I mean, that would make this movie infinitely better. I and I feel bad. I hate when I don't like a movie that I talk about. Especially, I, I've definitely. I know, and, and look. I mean, here's the thing: even in a Hammer movie, I don't like. I still enjoy watching it. You know, it's still a fun thing to sit down and watch. Like even when I don't like Hammer, because there's certain, there's just a certain. I've I said it before, but a certain air about the movie that's enjoyable. Um, there's a certain elegance to it. Um, you know, I can appreciate the set design. I can appreciate some of the action scenes. I can appreciate the mummy. Um, I can appreciate the character of Alexander King. There's always going to be elements in there that I like. But I will say this movie has more things that annoy me than most other Hammer films I've ever seen particularly this love story. This stuff gets just so nonsensical to me based on everything they've set up. Yeah. No, I, I, I really wanted there to be a reason why she takes such a turn uh, so very quickly with that character, but she doesn't, and there isn't. And uh, Paul, I'm not well, going to lie. Does... I... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. No, no, it's fine. <laughs> Oh, no, please. Go ahead. This should no. be like our, our argument. No, please. 
Uh, no, no, I, I, because she is presented as a character who isn't overtly villainous in the first part, and because we do see that there is kind of a fun relationship between she and her fiance, you know, in in the first stretch of the movie, then you, you're kind of hoping that the turn the movie feels like it's going to take doesn't actually happen. And then when it does, you're hoping that, okay, maybe there's going to be a reason for it. And then when it's ultimately revealed, there isn't really that much of a reason for it at all. You're, you know, if you're anything like me, you're just ultimately left muttering the word whore uh, under your breath. But uh... <laughs> I, I chalk it up more to just poor writing, you know, it, it feels like what they wanted to do was establish that her relationship with Bray was dry, that there was no passion there. The problem is there is passion there early in the film. (laughs) So then it just feels like she's somebody who's incredibly fickle that gets caught up in the moment um, and runs off with this other guy at like the slightest behest. You know, because there's nothing that Bray does that is cruel. If anything, he he allows her to fall in love with him. You know, he doesn't ever fight it. Not that it's him, you know, his her she's his property. But like, but it would no, be but fair but to but say that if you're in a relationship with somebody and they start very clearly flirting with someone else, that you could sort of challenge that and be like, no, hey, no, no, what no, the Paul, hell is not, going not, on? Not just sort of challenge. Like, that guy had the opportunity to put his foot down, and he didn't. Like, there was a relationship. They were engaged. He was well within his rights to sock the guy in the jaw for all of the flirtations that were going on flagrantly sure. right in front of him, and he never does it. And right. as a result, I, I kind of stopped giving a shit about him initially, too. But, the, you know, I... Well, it, it just feels like he's... Again, he my allowed. problem with it is the movie doesn't give us motivations for anything he just doesn't and then they don't explore why he doesn't so as a viewer you're like well why the hell is he not doing that this makes no sense and it it doesn't it it takes you out of the narrative because there isn't a logical reason for what he's doing it'd be like if all of a sudden he just started like jump roping for no reason in the middle of the scene (laughs) why are you jump roping like are you trying to lose weight that's not part of the narrative like it just it it takes you out of the movie because it doesn't make any sense and then you know it goes back to this mummy plot line and it just feels like multiple movies vying for center stage without any coherent glue you know making it stick together as one piece Paul, not for nothing, we did get unmotivated squats in The Kiss of the Vampire, so <laughs> Bray here jumping rope wasn't too far astray from what the company had given us before. Yes. I do like his bow tie. Yeah, bow ties are cool. His bow tie here is nice. He's got a good bow tie. Um, <clears throat> no, I mean, and and the mummy stuff is interesting. You know, we could talk a little bit about um, what we touched on earlier with the colonial colonialism aspect. Um, I do like that. I like them sort of swooping in, uh, and then kind of yelling at the, the locals and being like, well, this is ours. Now we paid you, you have no rights, you know, we're taking this and we can do what we want. Um, I think that was a really interesting thing to throw into a movie like this because it would have been really easy for them to just be like oh here's a mummy 
let's do the normal mummy thing. The mummy comes back to life and starts killing people. You know, it, they they actually tried to give it a bit of a a bigger meaning. Yeah, yeah, I would say they failed. Um, but well, they fail because it doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't amount to anything. It's you can't just. I mean, you can't just bring that idea up and then be like, okay, we did it. <laughs> now no, we're done. That is a beautiful shot. Just something as simple as somebody walking in to uh, to the house, you know, reaching down, opening the door, yeah. stepping in, leaving the wet uh, sort of footsteps behind. The moment that the film actually tries to build any sort of tension, it seems like Carreras is really engaged as a director. You know, look at the shot here, like the, the point of view on Bray with the hand in the foreground. Like, this is all very well done. Um, well, like a lot of early Hammer films, there is some giallo in there. Yeah. Like, that's a very giallo thing. The way this is shot, the glove. Um, I really, I would not be surprised if some of these films were influences on Mario Bava. Oh, my God, totally. And look, I mean, reaching, grabbing the face, turning it over. I, he's not wearing leather gloves, but there, he does have black gloves on. Uh that well, is totally, just the way it's shot, like the hand in the corner and the person not seeing what they're doing and the movement of the camera. It's 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 progressive um, and it definitely is engaging. I actually, you know, I, I hear what you're saying about some of the pedestrian look and feel of the photography. I actually think it's a pretty well shot film, though. And I know the cinematographer was uh, Otto Heller, who did, like, tons of movies, including one of my favorite films, Peeping Tom. So, I mean, like, it was shot by a guy who knew how to shoot horror films. And I would especially say... Especially horror... Oh, no, I'm sorry. No, you're good. No, I, I, it's not a bad-looking film. I just mean there doesn't seem to be much motivation behind, well... Here are a bunch of people talking. Let's get a master and two pops and move on. I imagine that Heller was like, uh, well, we have a beautiful mirror over here. How about we employ that so we can see people in the background? You get little (laughs) flashes of that. All I mean is is that when it comes to what ultimately serves as the bulk of the movie, which is, you know, it's weird to say, but it very much is a talking heads movie for long stretches, uh, which can be fine, but it doesn't seem like Carreras is that engaged as a director with that stuff. But when it comes to the set pieces, when it comes to the horror, the action, you know, then it seems like he comes to life as a director. And yeah, uh, I would agree. It, it feels very soap opera E for a lot of it. Um, he, he, it feels like he wanted to make a love, like you said, he wanted to make a love triangle movie almost more than he wanted to make a mummy movie. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, I think it feels like he wanted to write a Love Triangle movie more than a Mummy movie, you know, as a screenwriter, but as a director, yeah, it feels sure. like he wanted to make a Mummy movie more than he wanted to make a Love Triangle movie. When, in fact, all along, he should have been making a Carl Denham and King Kong movie. Man, how great would that have been? So this is one of my favorite scenes in the movie. Um, the presentation that uh, King does. and And just... Again, going back to Fred Clark's performance, I I love this. This is what he does best. It's atmospheric. It's it, it's it's John Hammond in Jurassic Park. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's he is the show 
even though the show is the mummy. I, I love any time that he's presenting things to people, <laughs> telling the stories, affable, there's humor to it. It, it. This is the scene, because up until this moment, he seemed kind of like an annoying asshole. When you see this, you're like, oh, okay, I get how he's a kick-ass salesperson. Because when he turns it on, and when he uses that assholeness to his advantage, he's the most like charismatic guy in the room. Ugh. No, I agree with you. I'm sorry. I was ugh-ing, uh Annette and Adam. Um, it might have been around this moment that I called her a whore, um, which is a terrible name to use for anyone outside of somebody who's flagrantly indulging in uh, adultery. Um, oh, my. Back to Promising Young Woman. <laughs> like, no, 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 no. I'm sorry. Am I wrong here? I would... I, 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 is she not deserving of a name being flung her way? Due to I her called behavior? her a name at the very end. What do you call her, Paul? I, I went bitch. Okay, well, <laughs> feel fair. At the end, like, when she... I'm like, I was like, you bitch. It was kind of like an anchorman bitch, you know? Like, it was Wes Mantoop. And, and she's like, no, it was me. He's like, you bitch! <laughs> like, more so, of an yeah. act of surprise. <laughs> no, I... No, and don't get me wrong. I'm not somebody who's... Yeah. That's the thing. Names like that can be employed so easily and in such a misogynistic manner that we forget that sometimes they're very well placed. Or so, and it's be. a reactionary thing when you're watching a movie. You know, I mean, that's the other piece is that when i'm watching a movie i often i'm i'm able to very much like turn my brain off and just experience things viscerally and sometimes that like i i am the guy who will like talk to the tv or say things out loud <laughs> not in a crowded theater i'm not the guy who's like annoying everyone but like if i'm alone and watching a movie like i will react to it verbally and i, I it's just how i am um and i can turn I, I... it off but Otherwise, I'll do it. I will say it's worth noting that I never once uttered that word in The Two Faces of Dr. Jekyll because Kitty, even though she was an adulteress in that movie, is also a three-dimensional character who wasn't mean-spirited, who wasn't trying to destroy somebody emotionally, who very much was just trying to do the best she could in a very difficult situation. I don't think Annette counts as being this movie's Kitty in any way. Oh, no, not at all. And again, though, that ties back to the writing and the storytelling. Two Faces of Dr. Jekyll makes sense. Everything she does makes sense within the confines of the narrative. In this movie, none of it makes sense. Her actions are just random. You know, like why she goes after him, it's not earned in any way. And that's why it's frustrating. Um, and that's why I sort of put the blame on the screenwriter, you know, I, that's which is the same as the director in this case. It's just not a very well written story. Or if it at one point was, it wasn't by the time it hit the screen. Um, and it seems like reviews tend to agree with us. Although, weirdly, I didn't see many people talk about the love triangle in the reviews or the problematic nature in which it unfolds. A lot of them just kind of talked about how contrived it was and that it was sort of slapdash and routine. Um, 
so I did think it was odd that nobody seemed to be writing about the 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 lack of reasoning behind the motivations. Mm. No, I agree. God, I do. <laughs> I really wish that I'm I'm repeating myself now, but had the movie been about him and like a younger protege, it would be infinitely more interesting than what we get. Yeah, I I want to see the movie. I want to see. Okay, I want to see the matinee version of this. <laughs> Holy shit! Yes, that would like, be fantastic. Literally, just take the plot of matinee in a, in a way, right? You couldn't do the same plot, but like take that kind of structure and apply it to this, and I think we'd have ourselves maybe one of the best mummy movies ever made. <laughs> oh, and his yeah, and his show could be called The Curse of the Mummy's Tomb. Like that would be awesome. The title could be like the title of his show. That would be and that like, would be the poster art. It would be the yeah, actual advertisement. Exactly. Just, the just curse of the mummy's tomb. Thing. Ten cents. Oh man, dude! You know what? That's the remake. Now yeah. we can remake this movie. We know the. <laughs> we know exactly what we need to do. It's perfect. Alexander King is the main character. You write out. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> who are we casting? <laughs> who are we casting as? Uh... Because look, we've at at the moment we've run out of things to talk about on this movie. I think we've made a valiant effort. <laughs> we've pretty much covered the whole film. We we have, by God, we have given more commentary for a movie we didn't like. I can't. I, you know what? We deserve pats on the back for that. We I do. mean, personally, I look, listeners. We I know it's hard. The rest of the way, the Hammer Pub is a is a tough pub to listen to sometimes. But, uh, you know, I, I think at this point we can go off the rails. I can talk about Twilight. It, it's whatever. We can go in whatever direction we need to go in. Um, and I've had three or four beers, so I'm, I'm good. You know what, Paul? I'm, I'm, I, I'm only one drink in, and I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mute myself. I'm going to pour another drink. I'll be back. Could you regale oh, the listeners with uh, your thoughts on oh, Twilight? On twi- no, I don't want to talk about Twilight again. I already did that, guys. You, uh, you know I like Talk about uh, Tenet. Talk about... Uh, no, no. You know what? How about you talk about Tony Scott, and I'll join you back here hopefully in time oh, for that. Tony Scott. Tony Scott's awesome. He's a super underrated filmmaker. Uh, underrated. He's not. I guess he's not underrated. People love him. But he's a great filmmaker that sometimes gets boxed in as being sort of like a, you know, I don't know, brainless action movie type of filmmaker. Um I've been revisiting some of his movies. Uh, I want to. I want to stand up for his final film, Unstoppable, about the train that wouldn't stop. Um, this movie is phenomenal. It's beautifully made, very exciting, practical as much as it can be. Uh, you got Denzel Washington um, as a blue collar conductor um incredibly believable and just feels like a regular person and i think that's why it works so well um you've got chris pine i think his first gig after star trek abram star trek so kind of coming off of this huge budget movie and they just they play so well together um really compelling story it's a a feel good story, but it still has a ton of tension. Um, man, do I love unstoppable. Uh, and, and, you know, 
in terms of last movies for prominent directors, that might be one of the best ones. Like, I can't think of him. Most directors, the, the final film. I mean, okay, Eyes Wide Shut. You can point to that. And far be it for me to compare Eyes Wide Shut to Unstoppable. But they're delivering two different things, people. I mean, I really think that from a Hollywood big budget summer movie, Unstoppable is as good as they get. I, I really do. And I, I think it's uh, it's worthy of reappraisal. Um, I know people like it, but I feel like it doesn't get the love that it maybe deserves. So uh, uh, I'm going to go ahead and say if you haven't seen it or if it's been a long time, go ahead and check out Unstoppable. And tell me if you think it's one of the best final movies of a prominent director. I mean, I certainly would rank it above Family Plot, personally. Not not trying to, you know, diss Hitchcock here. But, you know, Unstoppable, it does a little bit more for me. I'm hoping uh, that some of the other directors kind of end on a high note, of course. Um, I guess if Tarantino truly stops where he's going to stop, he'll probably uh, maybe out movie unstoppable but if i'm not mistaken he did a podcast recently where he talked about how great unstoppable was so um yeah welcome to the unstoppable cast where we talk about unstoppable during uh curse of the mummy's tomb i will comment back on curse again now that i've gone on my five minute solo rant um this is the unfortunate sequence where alexander king meets his end I do really like that the last thing we see him do is something decent. Um, that there's a woman that sort of tries to seduce him, you know, and he still gives her some money and says, "Gets you know, take care of yourself. Like, he, he's not the, the total creep that he sort of presents himself to be. We also get a really pretty sequence. Um, the fog is really eerie. It's really atmospheric. It's well shot. The mummy appears in a really kind of creepy way. Um, He gets one of the most visually stimulating ends. I mean, his death itself is sort of lackluster, falling down the stairs. I mean... But my God, how it's shot. But the final tilt, yeah, the pan up there, that reminds me of Phantom. It's a very Phantom of the Opera shot. Um, there's a sequence where the phantom's sort of at the top of the staircase, but I do really love that, and it's and the depth of field is incredibly well drawn there. Um, but yeah, so that's unfortunately the last time we see Alexander King, though. But yeah, um, you missed a sorry whole to thing. Have, uh, sorry Tony to have Scott. completely uh, abandoned you for about three minutes. I, yeah, I apologize. I talked about Unstoppable for a long time. <laughs> Unstoppable is great. You also want, you, you want to know what else is great? Friggin' Man on Fire, man. Like, I... Fire is so fucking good. And I... Yeah, I've been a Man on Fire fan since it came out. I'm one... I, like, and I feel proud of that. Because I guess... I guess not everyone was. I, I didn't know that. At the time. So, I didn't read reviews and stuff, so... I worked at a movie theater when it came out. And, Paul... 
I wanted to see the movie anyway. Like, I thought it looked really, really good. When I watched it the first time, I it blew me away how damn great the movie was. I walked out teary-eyed. Like, uh, oh, I cried my heart out during that movie. Like, it, I, it's, I, but I cry during every movie. I think I've told you that. Well, I, I, yeah, no, I, I admitted last week that I cried at the end of Babysitter Killer Queen. Like, I might have been overstating. I got a little misty. I, I tear no, up. I tear with up. with Man I, on Fire, I full on cried at the end. And yeah. oh yeah, I probably watched that movie. That was the movie at the time that I would implore my other fellow movie theater managers to stick around after hours or come in early and watch with me so I could introduce them to this film. And without fail, everyone loved it. That was the movie that I pushed from behind the concession stand on weekdays when we would sell tickets there when it was slow. Like if somebody would come in, be like, oh, I want a ticket to what the hell ever. And be like, oh, that's yeah, I've heard that's a good movie. But you want to know what a great movie is. You know, that was the movie. And so, yeah, it kind of bummed me out when I did start looking up reviews and people were kind of lukewarm on it. Well, I don't get it. It also stylistically was a bit it pushed the boundaries at the time that it was made. You know, I mean, it looked I mean, his the way he overexposed everything, like gave the movie a really like intense color it was like bleeding off the frame. Um, the select um, subtitles that he would throw up there. He yeah, started... it, it was definitely a, a movie that challenged visual conventions at the time. Um, I'm not saying it was like totally unheard of, but it it pushed things in a direction that I don't think people were used to. And then it was also a challenging story. I mean, the character Denzel's character in that movie starts in a place of like being like ready to kill himself, you know, like yeah, it, it well, and somebody who is really suicidal character who's given got, up, given up definitely. And we know from frame one that this is going to be our hero, but it's really interesting that when we're first presented to him, not only is he suicidal, he has reckoned with the fact that I mean, if we saw him in another movie prior to this one, he would have been that film's villain. Like we, we get the feeling that he's oh, done yeah. some really yeah. horrible shit. And it's not that yeah. sort of navel gazy woe is me. I did some bad things. And I'm going to wring my hands over it while I do a bunch of heroic shit in this story. Like the way that Washington plays it, he's such a smart actor. Yeah. He plays it like genuine remorse. Okay. Let's put man on fire on pause for just a moment because this is maybe the other truly <laughs> great sequence in this film. Look at this. Welcome to the man on fire cast. Um, yeah, this that's beautiful. Look That's at that. Awesome. But and I'm that, starting to wonder how much of this is Carreras and how much of this is Otto Heller. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe a really great second unit director who was tasked with, you know, shooting some of the action filling bits like, you know, sure. Yeah. But the hand reaching out toward the camera, the use of light here, it's just stunning. And, you know, yeah. three times the charm. You got to love the violence in this movie. Really sort of there's no blood but holy shit, like, could you imagine them being able to get away with something like that only five or six years prior to this? No. I do like how the mummy moves in this movie. I like the the blunt way in which he hits, and there's a rhythm to it. So good. But yeah, I like, I like all of the mummy stuff. Um, I wish there was more of it, and I wish it happened earlier. Um, yeah. However... I mean, some of it is a bit similar to what we've gotten before, but like you said, the violence is amplified. I mean, and I, I appreciate that. I just, I wish it was surrounded by a narrative that 
supported it so it didn't feel as hollow um but yeah i mean uh, it's yeah i i like i like a lot of things that happen in this movie i don't like the whole <laughs> yeah no you're uh, back to men on fire um <laughs> and tony scott no um <laughs> Yeah, no, I, Denzel Washington is such a smart actor. I love the way that he plays that stuff early on in the film, which is, as a guy who, no, truly did some probably really despicable stuff. And you mm. see that it's completely hollowed him out as a human being. And then the bulk of the movie you're watching, I love that the first half of the movie is something that kind of brings him back to life and redeems him. And then the second half of the movie is a portrait of a man who is now so much worse maybe than he ever was. Uh, but for, you know, for a reason that we at least identify with now, you know, uh, yeah. and then he gets a redemption again at the end. I think that ending is absolutely beautiful and it's an ending that's not present in the source material, you know, in the, mm-hmm. uh, the book, uh, I remember they released a, uh, you know, movie tie in edition around the time that the movie came out. Um, only it's set in Italy and in the seventies, I believe, but, uh, the, uh, PETA character uh the dakota fanning character who is i forget her name in the original book no she straight up dies in the middle of the book like when they recover the car they recover her body i think um and so it really is just a revenge mission throughout the bulk of the movie weirdly enough um there is not a death at the end of the uh at the end of the book which is kind of strange creasy went on to I think four book sequels. So, uh, yeah. And in fact, it was adapted as, uh, Tony Scott was going to make the movie back in the eighties. And yeah, I knew that. And somebody else made it. I forget who, but it starred, um, uh, Scott Glenn and Joe Pesci playing the Christopher Walken role. Uh, Oh, wow. I didn't know Pesci was in it. Well, I know that, uh, Scott was supposed to make it like in the eighties, right? Like that was, but he, his, uh, a movie bombed. I think the hunger, I think the hunger bombed and then financing fell through. And then in the two thousands, the same producer called him and was like, do you still want to do this? And he was like, <laughs> yeah, I'll do it. <laughs> and, and that's what happened. But, um, no, I, I, I love man on fire. I haven't seen it probably since college. So it, it's been a long freaking time. Really, I, I picked up the Blu-ray recently, so I'm excited to uh, revisit it on my Tony Scott-a-thon that I'm going to be doing this uh, next couple months. Okay, so you um, said you picked up the Blu-ray. I have to ask, back in the day, did you ever buy the DVD, the uh, collector's edition DVD? I think, yeah, I think I have that somewhere. I'm, okay, yes, so you, I'm you've sure seen the alternate ending then? Yeah, but it's been... Okay, you know, here's here's what I don't understand about the Blu-ray. A long um, in time. When the uh, when the movie came out, of course, they got a DVD release, and it was bare bones. Then it got this kick-ass, like, two-disc edition, like, collector's edition release that had 40 minutes of deleted scenes and a completely different ending. Hmm. And the ending, I think, is actually stronger um, hmm. than what we have in the final film. It's uh, smarter, and it pays off a couple of setups that you don't even realize are setups. Uh, in the theatrical version of the movie. Um, but yeah, for whatever reason, when the movie hit blue afterwards, it, it didn't have any of those bonus features brought over. Uh, 
So I'd be very curious to see if any new editions would perhaps restore that. It needs a 4K release, but uh, it's funny that we're talking about Tony Scott having the opportunity to make the movie in the 80s. I'm kind of glad that he didn't. For all the reasons that you mentioned stylistically, he wasn't there yet to have been able to make that version of the movie. It seems like after, uh, not so much with Spy Game, but around the time that he did like Man on Fire and then Domino, and then around that time he did one of the BMW short films called Beat the Devil with... uh, with Clive yeah. Owen and James Brown and Gary Oldman. It's fucking amazing. Actually, weirdly enough, all of those BMW short films are pretty damned awesome. Uh, They're all made by, like, huge directors. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my God, you got everything from, like, silly, fun stuff, like Beat the Devil. Uh, you know, John Woo made one that's as, yeah, as polished as any film he ever made. Uh, you have one that was made by uh, Alejandro Iñárritu, who made one that'll make you cry by the end of it. Like, it's, it's just crazy. like, it, it's, I haven't, it, I haven't seen any of those. I need to check them out. I, Paul, 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 Paul. I know, I know they're freaking I, BMW commercials. I just, I always avoided them. I was like, eh, that's but, why they got great directors to make them. Because honestly, you don't view them as commercials. Like it doesn't feel like product placement. Like but that's, that's what annoyed me about it. I was like, I don't like, that it's so it felt like um i don't know it felt like the 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 worst kind of like like i'm watching it's like mad men like, can, I, can i pitch this, something this to is you? them tricking me into watching a commercial but it's not, but like where does that line stop you know okay. where when is it art and when is it commercialism and I, I i'm not challenging these movies i haven't seen them so like i you know and i'm sure they're good but it annoyed me enough to kind of keep me away, if that okay, makes sense. So when I watch them, and whenever I watch them, I ask myself, hey, am I going to buy a BMW? <laughs> Answer, no. Mm-hmm. So I can just enjoy them like as being short films. But look at it from like those directors' like points of view. It, man, some of the choices that are made, and as bold stylistically as some of them are, it really feels like... They just went out to a bunch of directors and said, here's a budget, here's yeah. a character, do whatever you want, just the car that he drives has to be a BMW. And sure. go. Which of those directors would say no to that? Like, it's... No, I, I'm not faulting the directors. And, I, and also, I love movies that have really shallow product placement in them anyway. You know what I mean? Like, tons of movies I watch have product placement, you know, uh, so far be it for me. It's just, for whatever reason, the short film aspect of it felt more like a commercial to me. And, um, yeah, but anyway, I know I'm going to watch them. I'll check them out at some point. So, okay. But, uh, Tony Scott's was called beat the devil. And around that time, he had also done man on fire and domino. And that seemed to be when he was really pushing the envelope with the stylistic choices, like the weird frame rates, uh, the different, you know, obviously different um, film stocks, the text on screen. And then it seemed like by the time he got to, you know, beyond Deja Vu, he kind of reined that in. And then sadly, you know, he, he passed away. after. Was Unstoppable his last film? Unstoppable was the last one. Yeah, it was uh, Taking Impelum 1, 2, 3, and then um, Unstoppable. That's right. Yeah, and Taking Impelum is... 1, 2, 3 was... <sighs> You know, strike number one is it's a remake of a classic. Uh, it's still a solidly made movie, but I I remember a buddy of mine called it perfectly when it came out. 
Denzel Washington is amazing in that movie. Mm-hmm. John Travolta, who can be amazing and then can sometimes maybe not be amazing, was not amazing in that film. Yeah. You know, and a buddy of mine called it. He was like, you could take that exact same film and if you sub in Mickey Rourke in place of John Travolta, it becomes like a minor classic. And I don't know that I can argue that. Yeah, I haven't I haven't seen it. Um I yeah, Pel- Pelham I didn't watch. I'm going to check it out probably cuz it's pretty cheap. Like the Blu-ray is like $9 or something, you know. So I'll probably just pick it up and watch it. But I'm expecting sort of a serviceable action movie. Paul, do you think the makers of Halloween 5 had seen this movie? Uh probably. I gotta believe I, anyone making a Halloween movie has probably seen their fair share of Hammer. I'm just, this setup to trap the mummy is totally Loomis's plot in Halloween 5. I half expect to see Donald Pleasance coming out of nowhere with a plank of wood screaming, Michael! Michael! Do you, wait, are you suggesting that the man in black was behind the mummy situation as well? He might as well have been for all we know about him. I like that kidding. idea. It's I, a good I'm theory. Kidding. We we all know that the man in black was actually the head of the uh, Smith's Grove Sanitarium, as Halloween Six has told us. Yeah, I guess. Look at him. I mean, that is a damn good looking mummy. I think he's creepy as hell. I think what we need is you know, with all these new revisionist sequels that just like ignore other sequels. We just need a direct sequel to Halloween Six. <laughs> we just need to pick up. Producers cut, of course. We well, you know why. where it leaves off, and we get Paul Rudd back. We get Paul Rudd. He's now raised the child, so the child's older, and we go from there. Paul, we go, I am. We go from there. I am. I kid you not. I wrote a thirty-page fanfic, and Lord knows there's been a lot of discourse on film Twitter this week about fanfics, but uh, I wrote a 30-page fanfic <laughs> that attempted to bring all of the continuity. Oh, I read it. Various... I read it. I oh, loved that's it. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. loved it. I thought so it was great. It, in my mind, that totally happens beyond that 30-page script. Uh, weirdly enough, the column I do for Bloody Disgusting, Phantom Limb, Shameless Plug, um, I did one on Josh Stahlberg's um, Halloween Bad Blood, which would have happened after Halloween H2O and Halloween Resurrection, but would have gone back to the continuity of Halloween's 4, 5, and 6 and would have included a grown-up Jamie Lloyd as its heroine. And uh, I really wish that movie had happened. Like, you know, it doesn't matter anyway because well, they, all those continuities have been erased for the current films. But What, uh, what drives me crazy, though, is H2O, like, the script included... Yeah, all that continuity, and they shot scenes about it. Like there are shot. Yes, there are. Like Curtis has even talked about it. There was things in the documentary about it. There's a scene they shot where someone's doing like a presentation in a classroom. Yeah, the book report. Yeah, that that was shot. So that that exists somewhere. And I'm like, why is that not on the effing Blu-ray? Like, give us a cut of this movie with, that that we could watch and feel the continuity of it. That would be amazing. Release like the that's Jamie the Lloyd only cut. version I would ever watch. But release the Thorn cut. I mean, yeah, it's just well. I mean, there's so many different. I mean, there's the big Halloween five cut with like the totally different beginning that has been unearthed. They actually found the negatives for so like all that stuff exists, and yet we don't have these things on Blu-ray. It drives me nuts. 
Yeah, that I'm, does bum me out. It's like, guys, you know you're going to make money off of this stuff. It would spend yeah, it would the cost money them so little to just scan that shit in and put it on a Blu-ray and sell it for scan twenty it, bucks a pop. Cut it, time it, release it, make yep. your money. Yep. Yeah. I I am grateful that we got the Scream Factory box set though of the, the Halloween series because I never thought that was going to happen. Like I even never for what we were going to get a high def beautiful version of the producer's cut of six. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember sorry, my brother and I going on eBay and buying like the shittiest rip of it you could possibly fathom. <laughs> to the point where you literally could barely make out what was happening at scenes. And I remember us watching it like glued to the screen, so excited to see it. And we loved it. Even though it looked like the just the shittiest thing you've ever watched. Um muddy you could barely hear anybody i i don't know what this was a rip of like some maybe like 10th generation vhs tape um but i i just remember being so excited we like made cover art for it so we could file it with our dvds you know it, that kind of thing and then to get like a blu-ray of it <laughs> in full 1080p and watch it with them it was just it was one of the best experiences man i I remember I was I was a relatively new horror fan picking up like my second ever Fango and um, they actually talked about the producer's cut and how different it was. And in the letters pages, they had a picture of Paul Rudd in a thorn cult outfit arranging runes on the ground. And I was like, what is this? And everyone's talking about it. And I was like, how do I find this? Do I write into the magazine? Will they be able to point me the way? Like, you got to keep in mind, like. This was in the early days of the internet. The idea that anything was immediately available was just not the case. But there was a website called Video Junkie that was run out of northern Ohio. And it's the main job of this guy. He would import like Japanese laser discs of Italian horror films. And, you know, actually any sort of international horror film that had no major release here in the States. And he would basically, you know, uh, uh, run them off onto VHS tapes and make up artwork for them, and then sell them. And he got away with it somehow. I remember, uh, I think the first thing I ever ordered from him was uh, the Stendhal Syndrome, which, weirdly enough, was the first Argento I ever saw, and it's because I read about it in Fangoria. But he eventually got the Halloween 6 producer's cut. I ordered it, and I kid you not, I got it in opening day of Halloween H2O. So I was able to pop in the VHS mm. and watch the producer's cut of six and then immediately go to the theater and catch the very first showing of H2O, which was on, weirdly enough, it was on like a Wednesday or Thursday. Um, yeah, and I, I hear you, man. Like the, the quality was absolutely terrible, but the fact that you were able to see something that felt like it shouldn't exist was just kind of amazing. And then like it blew me away that I, I, I liked the movie more. I like the producer's cut more than the theatrical version. I have softened on the theatrical cut over the years. I actually rather enjoy it now. I think nostalgia must play some sort of part there. It was the first uh, Halloween movie ever cut on the big screen. But, you yeah. know, I, I don't think many people would argue that the producer's cut is better you know, than the theatrical cut. Yeah, it's my preferred cut. Um, I, I have nostalgia for all of the old Halloweens. Like, well, one through seven, I have nostalgia for. Yeah, Resurrection um, there. No, nobody's getting one over on that. Yeah, resurrection. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, eight, eight, nine, and ten. I can, I can leave. But um, uh, at any rate, <laughs> we're not going down that path tonight. 
We can, because you still owe me a rewatch, sir. You promise. Oh, God. You did, though. I just, look, okay. I am usually very careful on podcasts because because Rob Zombie has such a defensive fan base. Um, Okay, so what you need to do right now is talk about the stuff of his that you like before you go into the movies that you don't. Oh my god. Well, I mean, I love okay, uh uh what what is it? Um Lords of Salem. L- Lords of Salem is his best movie for me. <laughs> I think by far. <laughs> I think it is I think it's beautiful. I think it's his most visually interesting. I think it's um it's doing something different uh than any of his other films. I mean, does it have problems? Sure. Does the radio station stuff sort of not altogether work? Yeah. But like, does it not have an ending stuff, whatsoever? Yeah, the witch stuff is phenomenal. I I love it. I love it. I love its ambition. I think it's a gorgeous film. Giallo influenced everything else. Um, you know, I do think Devil's Rejects is a very good movie. I I don't think it's the classic. You know, I movie that a lot of people do. I just don't. It's just not that for me. I understand that it is for a lot of people. It just isn't for me. Um, but I think it's really good. Um, you know, I. But I, I, I really think, and I, I think some of it is, you know, sometimes movies just don't. Certain styles don't gel well with you. And I think Rob Zombie rubs me the wrong way. Kind of like my issue with Nolan. Like, Nolan and I just don't really see eye to eye on filmmaking. And that's not a fault on Nolan. You know, it's just, I'm not really, like, into that stuff. And I think Zombie, his writing style and and the grittiness of his direction, how that sort of plays off of his writing style, just doesn't always work for me. Um, And I just... When it comes to Halloween, it like does not work at all for me. <laughs> but I, you know, I've heard other people talk about it and how they say, "Well, those movies aren't for you." You know, they're for a new generation to discover Halloween. Like, so I'm not going to sit here and say they're outright bad. I just they're just not for me. I don't I don't like them. Um, they do like I I just don't enjoy them at all. Um, and yet I know that a lot of people really like them. I know you're a huge fan of Halloween too, and you want me to rewatch it, separating it from the series. And my argument always will be the same. And it's that I just think that's such a a cop out argument because if you wanted me to separate it from the series and look at it as its own thing, then don't make it a Halloween movie. Just okay, make your okay. own slasher. So, so like you, you can't do that. You can't say, "Well, look at it's how how, it's how do like, you feel well, about a Nightmare on Elm Street Part Two? Do you think that's a good installment in the Nightmare yeah, on Elm Street I like, story? I like Part Two. Yeah. Okay, but you like Part Two as an installment in the ever growing story. Part Two story is of also Freddy just Kruger. like a good movie. Like I don't think Halloween Two is a good movie. <laughs> like I, I mean, that's the thing is like I like what Part Two is doing. I think it's exploring an interesting thing. The effects are really good. It's very different than the first Nightmare, but also the Nightmare franchise. I don't. I mean, I'll admit this. I don't have the same. I don't have. I, I fully admit that when it comes to Halloween, my vision is clouded. It is clouded because I have so much 
nostalgia for that franchise. I just do. And there's no way to get rid of that. I just can't. I mean, it is what it is. I don't have that nostalgia for any other franchise. So like Friday the 13th, you could do whatever the fuck you want with that franchise. I would probably like it as long as it's not terrible. You know, um, Nightmare on Elm Street. I have zero. I love the first one. I love Wes Craven. But I don't have any nostalgia for like the franchise. If that I think makes new sense. nightmare is still the best. Um, just me. I I think it's the second best. I don't know. I I think they're both great. I think you're you're arguing over like trivial things. I mean, because they're they're both so good that it's like, oh well, which great movie is better? You know, it's kind of how. It, but I, I would I would see the argument for it. I think I think it was really important and influential. Oh, there's there's no argument. It's just personal preference. But. Yeah, no, no, you're good. Yeah, I, I think it's I, I think it's one of the most influential horror movies of the '90s, though, for sure. I mean, it changed. It, it was the thing that led to Scream. Like, see, I, think... I don't I don't know that that's true. I I think people can look back on that and see, at least so far as Craven's concerned, like uh, you know, oh, this was the lead up to Scream. But the thing is, is that New Nightmare played no role in Kevin Williamson writing the exact same screenplay that we see translated to screen by Craven. And it could have been any director who did it. Uh, they wouldn't have done it as well, I don't think. I was. I think Wes Craven was the perfect guy to do that. But I don't think that New Nightmare played any sort of significant role in shaping the sort of, you know, self-referential nature of Scream because it was always there in the initial draft, you know. I I, I think yeah, it's but... weird that people kind of give New Nightmare that uh, I think they're sort of retrofitting it into its history that oh, clearly this was the stepping stone to I disagree. us getting this. I... But uh, because because Wes Craven is so intrinsic to why Scream works. Sure. It, like Scream doesn't work under a director that doesn't know what to do with that material. It could have come off as being really juvenile and stupid. Um, had it not been presented in a way that, that Wes Craven, I think was figuring out how to tell that story, tell a meta horror story on a big scale. And I think new nightmare was the proving grounds for how to do that. A lot of the visual storytelling style of of scream is present i mean because it's the same director but also because what what new nightmare is doing is incredibly similar to what scream is doing and like sure williamson like may have written that script with or without that movie but i actually find it hard to believe that he didn't watch that movie and was influenced by it like that's a pretty big coincidence that like Several years before your meta horror movie comes out, there was a huge meta horror movie that was doing it, almost the same thing. It, it was it was like it was like two years. Two um, years is a long time. <laughs> like I don't, I just don't buy that he he wasn't influenced by that movie. I ju- I just don't. I mean, like he could say that he wasn't, but I I just don't believe it. I believe that he probably saw that film and was influenced by it in some way. Okay. <laughs> I, you know, we're adults, and we can agree to disagree. <laughs> no, but we seriously, can. okay. Look, at this this is this is October fourteenth, nineteen ninety four. This is two months shy of two years before Scream was released. Right? Mm-hmm. You, 
do, do, do we not think that Kevin Williamson already had a pretty solid idea in mind for a scary movie at that point? You know, like he probably had an idea for it because it's 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 the obvious place to take slashers. And the other piece of it is it's not like meta slashers weren't a thing before this, you know, like. Oh, no. Cutting class in like 88, 89 is very screen-like. So he probably really, saw... Really good. I, I'm just saying that I feel that Craven popularized or at least showed a path for meta horror to where something like Scream could even be produced. Okay, so, okay, I'm reading here. By June 1995, Williamson brought the scary movie script to his agent. That's eight months. Like, I... But you don't... So you don't think, though, that, like, New Nightmare existing doesn't pave the way for Scream? Even if... So let's say you're right. Let's say Williamson didn't... Was not influenced at all by New Nightmare. So his writing would have existed either way. My argument, I think, still stands because I don't think that movie gets made... Um or gets paired with a director as established as Craven without New Nightmare. I think New Nightmare needs to exist for Scream to happen. New Nightmare made less than twenty million dollars at the box office. It did. Like, it, it, but it, it was it was a, it was a dud. It was all right. So you just disagree. <laughs> no, 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 but hear me you, out. Hear it's me out, hear fine. Me out. You can. I, I, no, I, hey, you, you made I your just, point. Give me, I just give me a moment. It, yeah. Okay, but no, I don't. I don't. And here's why. I don't think it made enough of an impact to have completely changed Williamson's mind that he must have already had made from, and he's gone on the record. No, I'm like, not saying that. Yeah, I, I, okay, so I agree from what you just said that it sounds like Williamson did what he did regardless. Okay. I ju- I, again, I just don't think that that movie is what it is without New Nightmare. Because I think, I think so you even if New Nightmare you didn't do well, I think like Craven did that movie and learned some things about, because I think Scream is a tighter I, okay, so I think Scream is better than New Nightmare. And I think Scream is a tighter version of what he was trying to do in New Nightmare. So, like, personally, I think, like, you could look at New Nightmare as sort of like him figuring out how to tell a meta horror story in a modern way that's effective and, you know, that, that sort of, like, takes apart the genre while being one of those movies... Um, so I think it's important for him as a director and a storyteller. And then he has a script that just so happens to sort of do that same thing. And now he has a better idea of like how to do it. So as it stands, I still think that that movie needed to happen for scream to be what it was. So I think, again, if you give scream to like some random director, it's not going to be, you know, the iconic horror film that it, that it ended up being. It's weird that I'm arguing against a movie that I like. Uh, I, I hate that I'm in this position. No, I, I hear what you're saying. I just 
Okay, let me ask you a question, and then we can. Uh, we holy shit, the movie's over. Uh, let's... Oh yeah, and just like <laughs> I'm probably I'm probably not making my argument well because I've had like five beers at no, this point, so I'm probably I'm, just I'm, saying like an asshole. I'm but too mixed. I've just feeling, always so. I've always felt like I don't like it when people sort of like not you or this situation. I just I feel like New Nightmare deserves more credit for what Scream is. That's I've always felt that way. Like, because I feel like I disagree. Like, because it sounds like you think New Nightmare gets too much credit for Scream. I think the opposite. I don't think it gets enough. I don't think think I don't think New Nightmare gets enough credit for just being a damn solid movie. I have the argument that it is like some sort of precursor to Scream. And if it is, I think it's it's not in any sort of impact creatively. I think it's more just circumstantial. I think Craven just happened to do two self-referential movies. But are you, are, okay, answer this question for me. Given that the screenplay, like Craven translated Williamson's screenplay directly to the screen, there are no major changes. There are hardly any changes at all, right? Right. Do you not think the director who had just done The People Under the Stairs within five years of Scream, do you not think the director of The People Under the Stairs working from that screenplay would still get to the same place? to give us the movie that he did. Mm, I, I don't, I don't think scream would be what it was without new nightmare. I think he needed to do new nightmare to, to because meta storytelling is really difficult to do. Well, <laughs> we've seen that play out, yeah, right? No, that's like very true. Um, and I don't think, and here's the other thing. I like all of Williamson's movies. Like, based on his scripts none of them are as good as scream like they're just not i i don't feel at least like i and i mean i know like we love we talk about other williamson films that we all like but none of them even come close to me to touching what scream is scream is one of the best horror films of all time i agree like it just is that doesn't happen because of a screenplay only screenplay is important I miss Kevin Williamson. Why screen, won't he screenwriting. fucking write more screenplays? Like, I don't understand why Man, he's not writing screenplays right now. Shockwaves, <laughs> one of their last episodes, yeah. they had fucking Kevin Williamson on, and it's one of the best hours of podcasting I've ever heard. Yeah, yeah, uh, I remember that. And I remember thinking, it's like, man, I wish we hadn't lost this guy to television because, I hate to say it, like, he he's done some really interesting stuff in television. Nothing, on, forget Scream. He hasn't done anything um, in television, for me, personally, on par with, you know, that run of post-Scream stuff that he did back in the late 90s. There's nothing that he's done for television that equals, I know what he did last summer, or The Faculty, or, my God, even Teaching Mrs. Tingle, you know? Yeah, I I like Teaching Mrs. Tingle. I do, I I think that um, he, it just seems like he had such a horror, I think what it was, was he had such a horrible time writing films like it was such a bad experience for him you know because because he was working for the weinsteins and they treated him like shit and he hated it and so he retreated to television and where he's treated well and paid well so why would you go back you know and and so i get i i I understand why he doesn't but i wish because if he went to like a blumhouse if kevin williamson showed up at blumhouse and was like I'll write screenplays for you. They would buy his screenplays. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he's Kevin Williamson. Like that would be a, a home run. 
Like, I can't imagine it would be an issue if Kevin Williamson approached an independent horror company and just said, I want to write screenplays for you. Just give me autonomy. You know, I, I guess he just doesn't want to do it. But no, I mean, I hear what you're saying. I just I, 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 I look at it. It's weird. It's weird to me because I've never maybe I'm just like in a in a cave somewhere. I've never heard people staunchly defend new nightmare as a precursor to scream i've always thought that that oh, was like a I, small opinion that only i had no <laughs> not no, that no, i'm no, the one who came up with you, it you but i just mean that like there. this is yeah. not a thing i hear other people say so to hear I, in some ways i'm kind of happy to hear that you're <laughs> like oh two people say that too much that makes me feel good like because then okay good like at least people are giving it the credit it deserves because i know i know that it didn't do well i know that it when I say that it's a precursor, I, I see it more as like a logical, creative thing that had to happen for the next thing to happen. Um, and then in retrospect, those things are more obvious, even if in the moment it didn't seem that way. I don't know. Because I, I, I do think there is something about looking at things in retrospect and seeing that progression. Then it like there's nothing wrong with that. Like you can contextualize it in a way of, well, yeah, this was creatively like the next step. Like New Nightmare definitely feels like a precursor to Scream for me. Like it just does. Like it's 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 taking a famous franchise that's a slasher-ish franchise, making it into a movie about those actors dealing with being killed and then going right into Scream which is doing that same thing only in the narrative of the slasher. And still making it a slasher. And the fact that it's the same director lampooning much of the tropes that he himself established. You know, it's kind of like Steven Spielberg doing Ready Player One. It's like you have the guy who did the thing that this story is sort of referencing. Um, It just it's too much of a coincidence to not be important. I understand where you're coming from. <laughs> Is this a Christine situation? <laughs> I, I appreciate your argument, and Christine Brown was a terrible person. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> she didn't deserve it. <laughs> she um, no, I just mean, so, oh, we're not getting into that. We're not getting into Drag Me to Hell. <laughs> if we didn't get into Drag Me I to refuse. Hell, it wouldn't be the Hammer Pub. Now, that said, next week we are going to be talking the evil of Frankenstein. All right, folks, um, I guess, okay, we're going to go ahead and wrap this up, Paul. We're, uh, we're, we're, we're well in at this point. Uh, I feel like if we don't call it now, we're going to be talking for another two hours. That's, that's a fair assumption. All right. Folks, thank you so much for listening, as always. And as always, please make certain to like, subscribe, share, use the comments section below, even though you probably won't. You know what? I'll tell you what. Listeners, the first person to find the comment section and leave a comment referencing this episode and this moment right here, when I have a vaccine in me and I can actually go out places, I will send you a free Blu-ray. All you got to do is comment. You just got to throw something out there. Reach out to me at Twitter, at Jinx1981, or you can tag Scream Addicts. It's at Scream Addicts. Hell, you can even yell at Paul. Paul, tell them where they can find you. You can find me at Paul is Great 2000 the okay. very the ever-modest Twitter handle. 
Not a monster. Uh, but yeah, reach out to us, and I will at some point later on in this year, uh, probably at the end of summer, the way fucking things are going, uh, I will send you a Blu-ray. Just leave a comment. That's all you got to do. All right. Until then, we will see you next week with the Evil of Frankenstein, folks. Thanks so much. Have a great weekend, and we will talk to you later. See ya, Paul. Bye.